0: Welcome to A Page in History. Join us on a fascinating journey as we delve into the memories of the world-famous NBC pages. Get ready to hear firsthand accounts of their unforgettable experiences as they navigated the hallways of Burbank, California and the iconic 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Prepare to hear fascinating stories that were never meant to reach the ears of the general public. And now, your host for A Page in History, David Harris Katz.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm an enthusiastic admirer of my upcoming guest, and I promise you're in for an extraordinary experience. This talented individual, along with his dedicated team, possesses a remarkable ability to transport audiences to diverse places, which all help to tell a story. His artistry entails both the intricate design process and the profound responsibility that comes with its creation. You have all seen his work, but today we'll pull back the curtain and shine a light on the magic he creates. He's one of the masterminds responsible for conceptualizing and constructing the legendary sets featured on Saturday Night Live. In fact, he played a pivotal role in shaping the current rendition of the Saturday Night Live set with its captivating Grand Central theme and the iconic opal time clock that greets you each time you watch each episode. We are going to delve into the intricate, painstaking, and high-pressure process of designing and building these sets for the broadcast live every Saturday night at 11.30. Trust me, it's a conversation you won't wanna miss. You will be fascinated at this glimpse into the world of production design and the wizardry that unfolds behind the scenes of this legendary television program. He will also share insights into his journey from starting as an NBC page to forging a thrilling and fulfilling career in the industry. Furthermore, our conversation will touch upon the iconic figures who have left an indelible mark on Saturday Night Live, such as the legendary announcer Don Pardo and the influential music producer Hal Wilner, who contributed to the unforgettable soundtracks of many beloved sketches and more. We'll explore the inner workings of the film unit, the dedicated crew responsible for creating the pre recorded videos and commercials that grace the show and you'll have to stay tuned to discover if there are any exciting plans or tantalizing secrets he can share about the forthcoming 50th anniversary show. Plus, he's got a treasure trove of many other thrilling stories to share, including his intriguing experiences at CNBC, his stint in NBC's press and publicity, and the diverse page assignments he took on. Plus, you'll hear about his fascinating encounters with legendary talent like Donahue, Conan, and Jay Leno. He'll also take us on a journey through his upbringing in Connecticut, his academic pursuits in architecture, design, and theater, and his experience working at Marymount School. And he'll talk about his involvement with Ragtime and Susicle the Musical moreover you'll get to hear about his current passion a deep and enduring love for crafting and bringing special puppets to life which has become a central focus to his creative endeavors ladies and gentlemen it is both an honor and an absolute delight to introduce our distinguished guest he is a true artisan and a recipient of multiple emmy awards Please join me in extending a warm welcome to Saturday Night Live production designer, Mr. Joe DiTulio.
2: <sighs> Joe DeTulio, my God, Joe Wow, DiTulio. what Holy an introduction, cow. David. I don't know if I can live up to all of that. It sounds like <laughs> the introduction is more than I can provide. No, well, let me great. tell you... Um, it-
1: you're oh. you're you're an amazing individual and and it's uh sad but true that that actually is a true introduction you you really are such um an, an extraordinary human being and and it's amazing how talented you are uh, who would have thunk um it's really amazing watching you and i i've had the ple- pleasure of seeing you work um i remember years ago you uh i don't know if you remember but i remember going to your apartment and you would be like dave let me show you these little models and you show me all these little things that you built and and all this stuff and it was so intricate and so involved and you you took so much passion in what you were doing i think that is a testament to your drive enthusiasm you know and 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 the ability to sort of break through and do what you what you've done for the past what has it been like 20 years for us yeah yeah 28 28 oh my god i mean that's amazing so so um i guess i don't know where to start let's let's see there's so many things to talk about Um, uh i'm
2: not sure either but yes thank you very much i I guess first of all i think it's uh you know it's an it's a tribute to to you know you know recognizing and seeing all this work that i find kind of just happens to be what i do uh and what i love But um but yeah, I guess we could start maybe just my background a little and where I came from. But um right I I mean I grew up in Connecticut, uh, a big family of of five, four sisters and me. So right in the middle, two older, two younger, both creative parents. My father taught for many years creative writing and, and, and English and driver's ed among many other things he ran the yearbook and he was like a fixture at my high school for probably 30 something years and then um my mother was an art teacher and very creative in and of her own right and always encouraged uh creativity and always fostered that within all of us so you know fast forward into um heading off to college and applying to schools and uh, my older two sisters had both gone to Fordham and I got into Fordham. I was quite excited about Fordham, but I found I got into a Catholic university down in DC um, for architecture, which, oh. you know, I had that, that leaning towards drafting and building. And, and and in a way I thought, I'm not sure that Fordham's right for me. And when I got into the architecture program, um, aside from the fact that the drinking age was, uh, uh, um, uh, grandfathered in there right. i was legal to that was the last uh class that went into that college and was legal on campus all four years uh, not that that should be part of the you know i club. do
1: remember that because when i was when but, i was in school i remember being grandfathered in
2: yeah it was a big or, deal or, then right because we're you know, the same me. age i think yeah. pretty close yeah. right yeah but um so, and DC was an interesting place to be. It was all I did not know, but it's pretty much political science, you know, a lot of government, politics, all that stuff. Um, but uh, Northeast DC was kind of, it was an interesting place to go to school and the architecture program really, uh, I learned a tremendous amount there. Um, not only did I learn a lot of architecture and stuff there, but that's where the shift went, came for me to move into the theater. Um right around my junior my junior year towards the end there. No, might've been my freshman year, my senior year, first semester, when I thought I can't do this, I burned out. The program was very difficult. And I took a year off and worked construction and learned a lot about building houses, more probably than I did in those three and a half years. And I decided I need some time off. And my parents agreed to allow me if I promised I would go back and finish my degree. So I took a year off learned to build. And that's where a lot of my carpentry skills came from. We did foundation work, framing, carpentry, finish work, roofing, all the things necessary to build a home. And the light went on. I came back and I got very involved in the theater because I had a work study grant to help pay for uh, the school. And, I worked in the basement of the Hartke Theater and built scenery, and I—that's th- when oh, I realized really? this is this is what I can do. Not only I can design it, I can build it. I can. This is fake. I always k- joke with my colleagues that I are friends from college. If I see them and say, "Well, I'm a fake architect now," because you know I am basically. If you don't know, I'm a production designer, and I design the scenery for the show or uh, for any show, really. But the scenery is kind of like, you know, one side, it's the fake architecture, but it's still architecture, you know? Right. Well, actually, uh-huh. let me,
1: let me jump in on that for a second. Go so ahead. Because it is fascinating because again, um, what I found interesting and again, for the listeners, because you would, you would, you would literally do like the, the, the blueprints. So yeah. like you, you literally like did these blueprints and then you're saying that you actually, i guess in school and then prior you know you, you actually you know were building um sets and things you were actually you were building some of the things with your hands so you sort of in addition to designing them you were physically you know building them so you you kind of came at it from both sides and knew Correct. and i guess that as an architect cuz i don't know it's i don't know i don't know if our, maybe not all architects physically build But I would imagine because you were doing both, you know, you kind of knew like that's not going to work or this is a better way of designing it because I know when I build it, it's going to be, you know, it's maybe work a little bit different or better. Um, So you kind of came out from both sides. I think it's
2: important to understand and I think it comes with any trade or craft, anything really is. To get a balanced look at what you're doing, and I think uh, a lot of architects have a a, um, a lack of understanding. I shouldn't say a lot, but it's common to not really get your hands dirty and get in there and, and like build a, a help frame a house. Um, yeah. You know, doing that informs you so much, and I find that that's really of great value to me from architecture point of view, from set design point of view, and probably from most any point of view um knowing how it could be built so So,
1: okay so i'm gonna and i'll probably go back and forth because again i see a, a good relationship um so for the sets for the folks that are listening and again i i was always fascinated by this because even when i've worked you know when i worked at nbc and i worked at um for cable vision and we had sets we had like kitchens and bedrooms and sure. even when i w- went to L- you know like in i went to california we went to like the set of a la law and we went to cheers you know and you know if anyone's had that experience to like walk into a set the sets are done so well even though they're just like the faces of these walls you you literally can't tell that you're in a set so on the sets that you would do for snl um for those uh sort of x pages or anyone that's con- gone and seen the show they really look they're so accurate that they look as if it's a real room when in fact fe- and and all the set dressings and all the things that you put in them it's amazing how you can create something that looks you so realistic and it's and it's not right i mean right. do you do you um you know uh do you find that fascinating or, or more challenging to build just the faces of these things or pretty much is the same thing?
2: Well, I think it's actually easier easier and uh, almost like a shortcut, but uh, and it's one of the appealing aspects of set design that I always found was, you know, you could work sometimes years on a building uh, as yeah. an architect,
1: yeah.
2: but the beauty of SNL particularly, but set design is the process is much quicker and I always say to people like, you know, if you make a mistake as an architect, that's up for life. I mean, not not always. But, you know, right. that's a lot more permanent. Of a, an air. If I make a mistake, it's it, it, the door is swinging the wrong way, perhaps, let's say. You know, it's an easy fix on our set. We take it off and we hang it the other way right. um, and spackle and plaster up stuff when we have to. But, you know, when it comes to a house, there's a lot more pressure in a different way um we're still pressured to make it look real as best as it could but um you know it is you can get painstakingly wrapped up in the details in any job i suppose but as an architect and it can last forever and i find it interesting to work very quickly in the process of something like saturday night live where we will design the show on a wednesday and it is finished on saturday so three days later, really not even, but three days later, it's, it's on the air finished. Um,
1: which is insane. Again, we're going to walk through that process. It's funny. Yes, so, and do. even, and it's funny, even the, um, cause you've shown me, you know, like you need a doorknob, here's, here's 400 doorknobs you need to pick from, or he, you need a window. Here's 14 yes. different types of windows. It's mind boggling. What goes into goes, goes into it and the amount of choices. And it's funny. Um, For people to make the ability to to make a decision. And and actually, and I guess what we could do is we maybe we'll just sort of talk about the whole process and then we could talk about this other stuff. But, you know, you have you literally have to make a decision like I need it. I need a doorknob. That's the doorknob. I need a door. That's the door. I need a window. That's the thing, because you don't have most people you know, yeah, let's talk about it for a week. You know, let's, you know, like, let's talk about it for a week. Let's decide which window we want. It's like, no, you have to build all these sets literally in in an impossible amount of time. And those decisions from making the decision to maybe even having it built to maybe even having it painted, shipped and set up is almost impossible. I would almost say it's impossible. How you do it, how, how you and the team, everyone does it. It's impossible. It's it's crazy. Well,
2: it is possible because it's done. It but, is possible,
1: done. it? Right. But
2: I will say, you know, this is the famous quote from Lauren too. And I've heard it repeated many times, but we don't go on the air at 1130 on Saturday because we're ready. We go on the air because it's Saturday at 1130. We work <laughs> right up until the end. And at a certain point, there are times when we throw up our arms, and say this wasn't really right. But, you know, most of the time when you work under that pressure, you learn to get it as close and accurate as you could. And sometimes it doesn't even matter. You know, Dave, I could, we could read a sketch and I could have a total vision of what I think that sketch is going to be. And the writer comes in and says, Joe, you're going to design this one. I want it to look like this restaurant or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And I'll just be like, all right, I guess a shift gears and let's give them what they want. But mm-hmm. um, our instincts, meaning as the design team and designers, tend to be on pretty much after doing it a lot. And sometimes the writer's who not a lot of people know, but they really have full say in terms of what they produce their pieces at SNL, which is not the same on as most programs, but SNL as a writer, it's your responsibility to produce your piece. So you need to communicate to the wardrobe department, to lighting, to set design and tell us what you want and we're going to give you what you want. So, um, yes, it's, it's pretty interesting to, 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 um, so really have to create something that's existing uh, uh, and match it and make it look really good. But there's a lot of times we're just given a living room and and there's no real parameters to making it look anything more than real, you know. Um, right. So in
1: other words, the the writer who writes a sketch. So let's just say, actually, let's let's talk about Wayne's World, for example. And I, I, right. I don't I don't uh were you there i guess you were you on the show in some capacity during wayne's world i don't know
2: yeah at some capacity when wayne's world had been on a few times yes um i'm trying to think of exactly where i came in but um mike myers was still there and and um dana carvey
1: was there so for example the wayne's world basement and we'll just use this as an example for the listeners You know, did did Mike Myers come down and say to you or to the design team, I want it to look like a basement with paneling and a couch or did. Yeah, I was
2: not I was not there when Wayne's World first premiered. premiered, okay. I was there later. So we would get the drawing again and have to do it again. I overlapped it, but wasn't there at the original. But that's interesting because it's in Eugene's book. Eugene did draw the first Wayne's World, and it became an iconic look. Um, A better set I I could use as an example would be Safari Planet. That's a sketch that was on a lot of times, and it was one of the first sketches I drew that became a recurring sketch, meaning you see it again and again. And this is an interesting aspect of the show because you don't know what's going to be a recurring sketch till it becomes a recurring sketch. Right. We had a few of them that um, Keith designed a set. It was for What Up With That. It's a good example. I don't know if you guys know it. Probably people do. The listeners may see. But when you look at that set, you think, you know, it's a little unusual if you really pay attention. It, it, It doesn't seem right. And even Keith said, you know, I don't think I got this one right. And then it became the set for every every time we did it and it's hard to switch it after it's been something for a a couple of times, but it was a very kind of slick looking thing. And it was, I don't know. It felt like he was supposed to be, I I don't know if it was right or wrong. I guess the point is we never really know if we got it right. You just never know.
1: I guess it's one of those things where, you know, again, because the pressure of building these things is so quick, you sort of like build it. And then all of a sudden, if it becomes a hit, it's like hey we have a hit on our hands and now that set instead of maybe do some of those sets get trashed or stored Yeah. and then you're like oh we got to we got to bring that set back or we have to build build it again or something how does that work
2: Yes well it happens uh, I guess we could go through the flow of a week right you want to Yeah do that? so
1: yeah so we'll go through so so also you just mentioned Keith and Eugene um and I guess mention and Lee so Leo. Yeah, me, Leo so so just tell the folks who those folks are, what they do. So we have and how our team,
2: our team has grown a lot over the years. I always kid around because I have the old phone list from when I first started on the show, and everybody's name is in like a nice large font. Mm. And then as you pile through, I would get the new phone list every year and pin it up over the old phone list. Pin it, so I have a stack of phone lists. <laughs> you look at the one at the front, I need a magnifying glass to read the names. Because wow. so, the staff they still insist on fitting it on an eight and a half by eleven. And the staff has grown to, in my opinion, easily double. Oh, wow. But the point is, the four main production designers of the show are Eugene Lee, Leo Yoshimura, Keith Raywood, and myself. Um, And we're basically the production designers for the show. Now, there's a lot of people um, in line below us that do other stuff. um, And a part of our team that do a lot of the work also. Um, But originally... That was the team. Uh, even before me, it was just Leo and Eugene Lee. And those two were the original designers of the show from 75 to 80. Wow. I mean, that so is just... They're still that, well, Eugene just passed this year uh, at 82, but he had been with it. And Leo is still with us. And he um, is in his 40... We're heading into our 49th season for him. 49 oh years. He's done every every show since the beginning. Uh, I think he's the only one left and I don't even know if people realize, but even Lauren Michaels left for five years from 19, I believe 80 to 85 and then came back, but Leo stayed along with a few other people of which those people are now no longer, uh, with us either. Um, but it was a big house cleaning in, in, in 80. And I think everybody was loyal and left with Lorne, uh, most people. All right, all right. And then um, when the show came back, there was another cleanse, which I would say is 85-ish. And Leo tells the story of, you know, that he was uh, really on the fence for being let go. But Eugene said, no, 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 we have to keep him. So so they kept him. Um, so he did uh, stay for that whole time. So those are the four production designers that designed the show. Um, Over time, there was an art, I was an art director for a while before I got the production designer title. Then we Mm -hmm. filled it with another art director. We now have a drafts person as well. And uh, we have a graphics person, which is completely new. And we have a PA. Um, The staff is easily double what it used to be. And we used to have three interns, but we've turned them into a PA position and So the department is much bigger. But I'll tell you, when I started, it was very intimate and nice. And it was just the four of us when I started. Wow. So,
1: okay. so for the folks listening and now we're going to go through this and everyone, if you if you have a a glass of wine, grab it. If you have (laughs) whatever, we're going to talk about being this insane schedule. So literally wake the neighbors, wake up your girlfriend, your significant other, whatever. This is the most fascinating thing on Earth because you're not going to believe it. So we're going to talk about what an average week goes through and what you have to do and how it is get how it gets done. So let's start, I guess, does the week officially start on a Monday? Is that is that
2: when it officially the- starts on Monday for uh the rest of for a lot of the others, uh, I would say for the writers, producers, um, it starts on Monday for much, okay. much of the production team. It starts on Wednesday. Okay. So Monday is a pitch meeting and a meet and greet for the writers and the cast to meet the host of that week. So let's say someone's coming in like a John Mullaney, whoever. He comes in, they sit around and talk. He meets each writer and, 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 and uh, actor, and then they pitch ideas to them. They basically, I've never been a part of that meeting, but the way it's been explained to me and uh, understood over the years is You know, they just pitch ideas and say, you know, I have an idea of you, you know, uh, uh, buying a hot dog from a hot dog vendor and the thing drops on the floor and they just throw it back on you. Whatever. They have these funny ideas. They throw them their way and then they see what feedback they get about if they latch on to this. And then they I think they um, basically all go out to dinner at some point. Uh, It depends on the host. And over the years, it's changed. But sometimes a group goes to dinner. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes. You know, they they just go home, but Tuesday is writing day and the writers are up all night writing what they have to write and they have to, you know, at least submit a couple sketches. I don't know if they're required by their contract, but they're supposed to submit at least two sketches and and they're due on Wednesday. So Wednesday is when the show really starts and picks up production for the rest of us. And that's read through.
1: Okay. So let me pause for a second. So again, so on so Monday they just sort of threw all these ideas out Tuesday from like Tuesday, like from like, let's say midnight Monday night or Tuesday morning, like throughout the entire Tuesday going into really what Wednesday morning at nine o'clock, they have to come to, to, to guess your meeting. Is it your meeting or with your team?
2: Like, no, not yet. How does that work? Yeah. So, uh they're all we're all preparing for a read-through the read-through is let's call it 40 for simplicity's sake there's about 40 scripts generated oh wow and there's a there's a main sheet that lists all 40 by name whatever they're called you know and those those 40 scripts we sit around a big table and they cold read them just like you would table read any uh piece of uh theater or play or when you oh. get a new works, you just sit around and the, 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 the performers read the parts and, and you get a reaction to it and oh. decide what you're gonna produce. So in that process is Wednesday, we do that read through, we, we read all 40 scripts and sit there and listen to them. And once those 40 scripts are, are all finished and read, there's a break and there's a big meeting and decisions are made out of those 40 scripts, which ones we're gonna produce. That's made by Higgins and Lauren and the producers that work on the show decide okay this one was pretty funny this one wasn't funny let's make and,
1: and Higgins is one of the producers
2: is yes that- Steve Higgins produces Lauren Lorne might, you know Lauren does is the head producer obviously the main producer but Higgins oversees a lot of it and, and there are others as well but yes so they'll choose the 20 scripts to produce oh, so out, of the, the,
1: out of the 40 they they narrow it down to to like 20.
2: Yeah, out of the okay. 40, yes. They uh-huh. actually probably narrow it down to closer to 12 or something. It varies, you know. Okay. It varies a lot, especially, remember, it's 28 years I've been doing it. So oh my if gosh. my memory's a little off, don't hold me to it. But generally, that's that's like, let's say let's we say- pick 12 scripts. I mean, it's easier. That's why we don't have a visual, but I could certainly pull out a stack of, of drawings. But that's the process, right? So when Wednesday the scripts are picked, we basically sit at our desk and the director comes around with the writer and says, tell me about this script you you wrote. We're going to, we're going to, you're going to design the kitchen for this.
1: And and wait, what time is this? Is this like in the afternoon? Is this at like eight o'clock at night on Wednesday? What is This is
2: Wednesday. The meeting is supposed to be at three. It never happens till about five or six. Oh,
1: really? So that meeting is late in the day PM. So you, so you and your team, you're literally seeing this at like, six o'clock or something or later
2: yes nine wow. nine
1: really oh my god nine at night. Yes. so it's almost like the day for most humans you know that the day is over at wednesday at that correct. time you're literally just being said here are the scripts for the show that are airing saturday night That's it's correct. wednesday night and That's i want everyone to just process that they're handing you these scripts wednesday night saying we have to build all of these sets not write the script, but, you know. not putting on, but physically have to build this. And I, to me, that's insane. So, okay. So yes. take us, take us at that point where they're sitting with you going over the.
2: Right. So let's say we pick the 12 scripts. We're sitting at our desk, waiting, they come around and we start with the director and we have a ground plan of the studio. And we say, where do you want to place each set? Hmm. And the director will say, I think this set would play good on home base. Now, not everyone knows what home base means, but you will in a minute. Home base is really the tongue part of the stage that comes out, that the host comes out at the beginning of the show and does their intro to. And you hear the whole, uh, you know, uh, tonight uh, musical guest is so-and-so and and, uh, I'm happy to be here. You know, that's the opening uh, um, tongue. And that's, that's the main stage where the show starts. Well, that part uh, um um geez i lost my train of thought where were we with with with
1: oh just 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 the fact that that's um um the time frame yeah just so it's nine o'clock you know nine o'clock you you, you you're they're going over the scripts but most of the sets oh, are placement. starting at home base or i guess yes, so i guess you're so saying placement. the director is so, showing you the place yes. yeah.
2: director is going to tell us like I think it would be better on home base and of course we'll agree if that's what you want but home base is harder because that's the stage that moves and that scenery has to be taken apart before the next sketch can happen right all right so with SNL the, the the everyone wants to know you know how do you do this how do you do that well we don't know it. We figure it out each week, depending according to what what is needed. You know, there are some weeks we just need living rooms, kitchens, and easy stuff, and some weeks we need a submarine and a boat and
1: a train station.
2: Yeah, and a yeah, and a tree fort. You know, right, they're, right. They're, they can be very complicated things. But the director chooses on Wednesday night with us where the things get placed. We will argue a point if we think it's better not to put there because you need to climb upstairs and it's better if we put it here or there. Those decisions are made. But after that, we're basically left to design the show Wednesday night before we go home or go to bed. So we will talk to the director. Then the writers will come in and we'll say... This is what the director wants to put the set here. It should be here's some images of research like a restaurant. We thought it would be like, what do you think? They say, yeah, it's good. And they go to bed and we stay up drawing until we're done with the whole show. So that's just one sketch, but each sketch is discussed this way.
1: So I don't even, even what you just mentioned, and it's funny because I'm so anal and I've done so many insane things. I think i would probably start crying at that point (laughs) like i just cried many nights i I mean i'm not even joking just just mentioning that one i I almost want to cry now like mentioning one set and doing what you just described but having to do the entire design every set by saturday it it doesn't even seem like i said it does not seem possible i don't even know it is
2: quite overwhelming i won't lie and in fact it's more overwhelming now than it was earlier because I just want to get the job done. And now I'm left with incredible. Um, we can talk about this cause we have to, but you know, the show has changed a lot since I started and it has evolved a lot since I started. And I just have to point out that I'm remote for Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday now, but Saturday right. I'm in live. Well, being remote seems like, Oh, that's great. Let me tell you, it's worse because mm. Everything's on a delay, and I am up Wednesday nights, often until 3 o'clock in the morning, um, waiting for the drawings to be all assembled from the various other designers so I can see the whole show and waiting to print my set of drawings. So on Thursday morning, for me, the next step is Thursday morning, and I'm talking at 6 a.m. So Thursday morning, I oversee the construction and those are morning people, the carpenters that build the show. And they're a different company at Stiegelbauer Associates in Brooklyn. So (laughs) I would get online with them in my pajamas, basically on Thursday morning. In the past, I would have to get up, shower change and get in a car service, get out to Brooklyn on Thursday morning. But now that turnaround has been so painful and COVID gave me the option to speak up and say, listen, I. I can't do these hours anymore let me be remote I'm in Brooklyn I'm in I'm in Midtown Manhattan then I'm in Brooklyn now I'm going back to the street, Connecticut
1: you know I'm in Conne- Connecticut yeah
2: Connecticut now so you know um it has been really a wonderful kind of compression of time but I'm up now until three and four in the morning whereas before you just you'd get out of there you'd get home before you you know as soon as you could uh you can't do that so much
1: anymore. okay so let me I'm gonna rewind a second so so again, again, for the listeners, because, again, I think it's amazing. So, you know, here it is a, um, late, you know, Wednesday night, and you're waking up Thursday morning. Correct. And I think that most people, for example, I use myself, like if I'm writing a script on something, you know, I may write a script, let's say, Wednesday night. I'll wake up on Thursday and, like, reread it. I'll check it, you know, let me mess with it. Maybe on Friday, I'll I'll tweak it. But you're literally Thursday morning, building like what i like you wrote it but it's like no no we're actually building these sets we actually have wood and construction folks doing this which is which is insane so and also actually before we do that i just want to mention one thing about home base which is which i found fascinating you mentioned about you know where we should place these things i think for the audience listening um one of the coolest things that i that i that i which is insane is when you set the setup on home base, which is which is in front of where the guest host comes out of the back door, which again, for those listening, the back door, there's really nothing back there. It's just a wall. Um, but when they have that setup and they say, um, they, they do the cold open, they go live from New York, it's Saturday night. And then you hit that animation for the open of the show. Can you describe to the audience what happens after they're doing something on home base just explain that whole that whole uh action because <laughs> i don't think people absolutely yeah, so,
2: so if you uh i recommend you go on youtube and you google saturday night live cold open to monologue set change if you can oh. even remember oh perfect
1: that. okay well that, for right? those listening yeah they'll, they'll, okay
2: but the, for those listening you can yeah. play it over and over again but it's on youtube and it's basically it's one of the best. I use it every time I give a little talk. Ooh. It shows you a changeover from the home base before the host comes out. And it is one of the most uh, closest calls in a, uh, uh, ever. So when you said we're doing re- you know, audio, I realized a lot of my tools of showing you these things to okay. are, are harder to do, but you just go on and look and you will see the changeover of the scenery for the opening mon- monologue. Ooh. It's amazing to me when I watch it. So all the scenery is behind them. they say, live from New York, it's Saturday night. And you hear the voices of the men in the control, people in the control room, I will say, saying like, okay, let's get that out of here. Camera one, move in. You can hear the control room talking. And the crew is literally taking the scenery down so that they could get ready for the host to come out. And as it's coming down, the people in back are scrambling too because there's plants and it was the, I think it was the Christmas show, but there were plants in the way and chairs and they're rolling the carpet up and they're trying to get it out. Stand by, the camera's coming in and you see the camera boom crane come in to get the main shot and there's stuff in the way and they're pulling the crap out of the way and the camera turns around and just in time, they sneak off of the stage and there is the host saying, all right, and there's applause and there's no way for me to reenact it except to watch right. a particular YouTube video. Right. Well,
1: so so again, the um, and again, I want everyone to go check this out. But the open of the show is what is it? Thirty seconds long or a minute. I don't know the, the animation where they do it. Maybe it's 30 seconds. It's or it two a minute. minutes. set change. Oh, it's anyway. two minutes. So literally, if let's say you have let's say you have Dana Carvey doing the church lady as an open whatever, yes. and they got the whole church lady set. That's what people see. If for some reason that's on home base, when they say live from New York, it's Saturday night, boom. People are, like, as you mentioned, rolling up the carpet, pulling the walls down, moving the desk. Actually, they're grabbing Dana Carvey and yanking him off the chair, pulling his, like, if he happened to be in the open, if it was maybe a guest, pulling his clothes off, running him across the set. It's insane, and it all happens within two minutes. Yeah. It's the most amazing thing. and I and again, I really encourage everyone to go look at this video because it's so insane. And then what's so cool is that when the guest, you know, comes through that door, if the guest happened to be in the cold open, again, they've pulled off their clothes, wardrobe yeah. is running them, you know, changing them, and it's all done in two minutes. I would yeah. like anyone to try to do any task their boss has given them in two minutes. Yeah. good luck. It's just and amazing. It's amazing. Okay. So anyway, that to me blows me away. So now let's just forward. We'll fast forward to Thursday. You mentioned, and I, and I always butcher the name. Is it Stiegelbacher? How do you pronounce it?
2: Yeah. Stiegel Bauer.
1: Stiegel Bauer. Okay. Yes. So again, for the listeners, there is a, there's a construction facility called Stiegel Bauer in Brooklyn. And now explain to us what that is and then how that
2: works. Right. So Stiegelbauer Bauer Associates has been, uh, the they're not NBC, but they are the the armature of, of, of SNL for many, many years. And they basically build the scenery. So we have this massive warehouse. They basically we are clients of theirs technically, but there's a warehouse that stores a lot of the basic scenery. And when Thursday be, starts, um, I would go out there and I would start to put together the drawn sets with pieces of scenery that we have in storage there. And a lot of it's built new, but there are basic pieces that can be used over and over again that I explain to people. It's like a kit of parts. So if we need to make a living room, great. There's two windows and a door. That's the kind of scenery we do have and we do use over and over again. It does get pretty beat up after a while. But when you're talking about like a submarine, which is a good example, because we've done a few we don't have submarine parts it's all (laughs) custom built from scratch the walls are curved the windows are round portals the, The the you know and it depends on what type of submarine so this is just basically what Stiegelbauer basically takes the drawings that we bring to them I oversee kind of and supervise the process and the and the and the order at which things are done in order to kind of meet rehearsal uh schedule but um they build the scenery they prime it We don't usually get it painted finally, but we prime it, get it on a truck and send it up to NBC. And they are in the Navy Yard, in the Brooklyn Navy Yard on Flushing Ave there. So that process is very nerve wracking because Thursday morning I'm exhausted. We come in with a pile of drawings. Let's say there's 12 sketches. I'd have to decide which ones are done first, second, third, fourth, fifth. And that is a factor of, let's say there's 12 sketches. Six might be rehearsed on Thursday. Six might be rehearsed on Friday and all 12 get rehearsed again on Saturday in the morning or early afternoon. And then we bring in a full audience and we do the show just like it's live from eight to 10 as a dress rehearsal. The audience leaves a new audience comes in in an hour and a half. We're up and doing the next show show live, completely compressed, cut, rewritten, edited in terms of physically, not, not, they redo the whole show live. It's not re-edited from the right. first show. It's, it's edited in terms of writing has changed. Things are compressed so that it can fit the hour and a half time slot. Going into the dress rehearsal on Thursday, we're always heavy at least 30 minutes to an hour sometimes. Hmm. It gets that out of control. So that's a big compressed look at it. But generally, um, Thursday and Friday, the six sketches that are going to be up on Friday – get built first so that I can provide scenery for Friday's rehearsal to be, it's usually the more elaborate sketches. If a window is jumped out of, or people squish through a door or a large, the, the set is a more physical, um, uh, aspect to it like the exorcist we did recently I designed and the, the the host had to rise up out of the bed and, and, and scream and yell all right well I can't get that done for Thursday so they'll push it to Friday for me but I know I got to build that because they can't rehearse without the set without the right. bed even if it's not decorated perfectly the main pieces need to be there um, another example was fun the subway set we did uh, it came out really great. It was a lot of hard work. I actually designed that one. I was going to say I loved
1: it. Now, now again, for those listening who know, I have a show called "Date While You Wait," which takes place in the subway. That when I oh, saw okay. your set, and I I'd asked you to be on the show in the real to build me a subway set, and then magically you actually wound up building a subway set. Yes. When I saw what you did, I fell out of my chair because it was so unbelievable. I mean, it was, I I I literally like was speechless how cool what you did was. David, and I'm like, I, oh I my felt,
2: god, this would have been so cool! I felt the same, I have to be it honest. Was so cool. When I put my time and energy into it, you still don't really ever know how it's going to come out. But when this came out, I thought, wow, not only was everyone so happy with it, and it looked so real, and my graphics person was, was did wonderful job of duplicating all the graphics. I thought we, we could have shot it on location, it looked so good. But yeah. the main... Uh, thing to remember is like you never know if it's going to be a hit everyone loved it and the cast gathered on that particular set and they took a cast photo on it that day Uh, and I was remote so in a way I was like asking how does it look it looks good on camera to me everything's good you know And it was hard to be remote Um, I was remote completely remote for two seasons and that's when we did that one Um, so I relied a lot on the rest of the team to do that stuff Uh, Well, it was
1: amazing. It was amazing. So let's let's backtrack just a little bit. Yeah. Um, So when the sets are built in uh, Brooklyn, and this is also what I think people don't understand. So everything has to be. Well, as you mentioned, some stuff's not painted and everything. If you build something that's large, explain to us how a large set piece gets into the little even though it's a big studio explain that process yeah. let's say there was a car because yes i've seen,
2: yes, for I've seen to know. many
1: cars in on the show so tell us about that
2: a car is a perfect example so not everyone realizes because they're just watching through their tv but NBC and Studio 8H, the famous studio up at NBC, it's on the eighth floor. So clearly, it's not like when you're working in California or Los Angeles, you know, a lot of times they get big warehouses and you can build scenery really big and right in locations. We are on a tight time constraint in New York City on the eighth floor of a building that was built a long time ago. (laughs) There's a freight elevator and I have a little card in my wallet actually that has little dimensions of the elevator. These cards have been around for years when NBC first started building scenery. One of the old timers gave me his card. It's all crimpled up, but it shows you the parameters of the door and the elevator. And we have a model of this elevator at the shop. So if there's anything in question, They will do a one-inch scale little block piece of what that piece is, and we'll slide it into the model to see if it fits in the elevator. You could do it with a tape measure, too, if it's just a long, flat piece. But right now, you know, I'm pretty good at just seeing things and saying that will not fit. you got to do it in two pieces. But newer carpenters that start at the shop and everything's happening so fast – they might build big things and I'll walk by and say, geez, that piece, I'm sorry, it looks great, but you got to cut it up the middle, make it clean and send it up in two pieces. So a car is a perfect example. Um, When a car is needed for the show, first thing I cross my fingers and hope, can we use a car we already have that's prepped to fit in the elevator? Usually we can, but if we can, we do. Uh, So let's say we need a, a, a Lincoln town car. All right. We start with the prop department and call them and say, we need a Lincoln Town car. We just found out Wednesday that, that we need this. So on Thursday, they spend the time finding the vehicle from a you know an auto place, they have a few resources. And we buy that car with approval from the producers because that's usually a reasonably expensive thing. Um, but we don't waste a lot of time with that. We just say, we found a Lincoln car for 12 grand or whatever it is, I made up the number, but uh, can we buy it? Yes. So they get approval to buy it. The car person takes out all the engine, the exhaust, any gas lines and, and, and anything uh, and oil lines, anything with liquid in them has to get removed from the car before it gets sent to the shop in one piece. So those parts are pulled out. it change, it lightens up the vehicle but it's still a full car gets sent to the shop. We rarely see it until Thursday night late. So the work on the tr- car usually starts Friday. Friday morning we assign a couple of the people that are better with metalwork and they look at the elevator look at the car and they figure out where to cut the car. The car actually gets um, they start by welding a steel frame to the bottom in two square shapes so that the car could be cut into two pieces and the aluminum the steel they use is hollow. So it's, it's, it's tubing, we call it. And then they weld four wheels to each one. So eight wheels and the car is up off the ground like three quarters of an inch. So you're really rolling it around on casters, big heavy duty casters. That's the first step. Then they take a sawzall, literally with a metal blade, and they cut up through the roof, down the side doors and under the car. They cut through the whole car into a half piece. <laughs> That's just the first step. Then because the steel's tubing is hollow, we have a, a dolly that's shaped like an L, and the two are, the two, it's like a mini forklift, okay? It has two things that slide into the hollow steel, and then it lifts, we lift the car and turn it up on its edge so that it could be on the door side and protect it, mm-hmm. obviously, by making stops in the steel. I know this is a lot to do verbally, but um, but that's for the listeners. But it's basically taking a car and turning it 90 degrees up on its end without letting it get damaged. So it can fit through elevator doors. A car is almost always shorter than it is wide. So our opening in the elevators, I think, 6'11 uh, diagonally, something like that. But 5'11 high by six foot something wide. I don't remember exactly, it's on the card. But um, And then it's about 10 feet deep. So it's tough, but that all gets done. And then sometimes they'll call and say, we need the windshield taken out and be like, oh, that happened just recently. I hate taking the windshield out because once it's out, it's out, you know. And the companies that remove them, we've made fun of on TV, so in our commercials, so they don't want to come help us like Safe Light and all. They won't even talk to us.
1: Really? I yeah, well, think we they made would. fun of them. Yeah. We had a
2: commercial parody yeah. about them being, you know, perverts or something. And I think they, were like, <laughs> they stopped taking our calls. <laughs> But they also have equipment to remove windshields easily, but that it's attached to their car. So once that vehicle is up in the eighth floor, we right. sometimes have to resort to just smashing out the windshield. Um, right. But anyway, so that's kind of how a car goes in. And remember, it's going into this elevator with stagehands that aren't exactly the most gentle sometimes. And the car gets beat up. You push on metal and push on the roof of a car. It has no structure to it, especially once you put a saw cut through it. So all scenery um the car is an elaborate example but all scenery has to be built to slide in and be put back together to slide into the elevator go up to the eighth floor and reassembled by a whole nother team than the team that built it so that's another uh uh, factor
1: and and so so with these let's say it was the car um if those are two separate pieces right you're reassembling the two pieces um the big cut down the middle i mean is that just you just don't notice it on camera that that you stuck it yeah no together, that's a great or...
2: question the uh it's always been a challenge the way that the cars are uh built and cut the the, the cut line in the ceiling and the roof of the car tends to be ugly and and we try not to shoot it and try not to see it very much um I have had times when we get permission to do a car like on our summer break and I put a little aluminum piecing in there and make it a much nicer scene but a seam uh-huh. is a seam. And when it comes to the side doors, we usually uh, we try to cut it through. There's a there's a there's a large piece of steel that the door hangs on the back door to swing. And we usually cut it there so that the door jam is still intact. And the doors always get not always, but usually get removed from the rear and get bolted back on uh, in the studio. Wow. So the back doors. So the rear part of the car is awfully flimsy when we're done. But wow. it is very primitive, and we actually we're in talks now with um with some of our uh, teams that have built for us. One of them's Monkey Boys. They do a lot of puppetry and a lot of basically weird things that need to be custom fabricated. We're in talks of making a fiberglass shell of a car. But I will say we've had this discussion many many times before. The problem is David. Look at a car and think about it. You have a dashboard, you have a steering wheel, you have car seats, you have windows, you have, there's so much to it that to fabricate a fake one just to make it light, it's not worth it. We buy a car for a used car for fairly reasonable and put some work into it and hope it holds up for a while. And you can always get replacement parts if you need it. But um, the idea of a fiberglass car would make so many people happier because it would be lighter lighter. It, you never we rarely need the engine but we don't know what car we need and they right they might
1: need a, a compact they might need a luxury yes. car yeah you know so and yeah so it um but it's fabricating
2: almost... a fake car is more than buying a brand new real car <laughs> right you know it's, it's like it's not so they're in the process of but i've gone through this uh three times in my career on the show because producers you know change and stuff and 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 they really are in a push now saying we should really make a lightweight car would be lighter it'd be easier to move around and be yeah you guys are right but you know tell me which car to make and what color and what you know there are so many factors that and in the end we have to buy a junk car anyway to get the seats and to get the steering wheel and to get the right it's actually
1: easier and it's funny you know talk about cgi you know in in all these marvel movies and whatever else and but some of the older movies, and I forget, um, uh, I th- maybe it was in in Batman. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the movies want to use practical effects where they're blowing up a, a real car, flipping it over, you sure. know, real fire. And I have to say, there is something it does look better when it's actually real. So when you use a real car and again, me as a as a 10 year old kid watching SNL, um, you know, you see a car, it looks just like a car. You yes. know, when you see green screen, you know, even to this day, you know, you know, it's a green screen, or you know, it's fake or it's or it's just a background or something. So there is something magical. And again, the fact that SN- that that the crew and you and the designers and everybody else, that's the magic of the show, you know, doing pulling this off, you know, because yes. yeah. technically and it's funny, even in Star Wars, uh, I guess the Mandalorian uses that big uh led or q led whatever screen it is yeah, yeah. to create all their sets well that's just a photograph behind the talent and they they change the atmosphere by hitting a button yeah but when you watch snl and you you know you could physically see all of the parts and all the pieces and it looks like and that that's you know and again it's so weird it like brings me it gets me emotional like when i was little and you watch snl and that's i think the magic of being a page and all this other stuff but i always wondered i'm like where in the studio? you know you, you watch it as a 10 year old kid and it's like where are these kitchens and bathrooms and rooms and how is this being placed and how does the audience see it you know and then when you go into the studio and again for those who's never who've never been in there you know the, the some of the sets could be far off in the distance maybe to the right side of the studio and some of the folks in the balcony might not really get a good shot of that set, but they're watching it on a monitor, which, you know, they, you right. know, you know, so the whole thing is, is, is just so fascinating. So I guess we'll just, so we'll fast forward to Thursday, um, right. They bring all, you know, they're working on the sets Friday. You're, you said you were rehearsing, you're building all this, you're building some of the sets, but now, you know, Saturday is rolling around and, you know, what? what's the pressure and and like, you know, what is, what is the goal of getting those sets? So, done? so
2: Thursday and Friday, as we said, the construction, at least my aspect of the show, remember, there's a lot of other aspects, but on my aspect of the show, my oversight of the construction of these column 12 sets needs to be finished by Friday, actually not Saturday. Oh, so right. the shop closes, the shop works Thursday really late, usually midnight ish. Nowadays, Uh one, and then they come back at seven, they try to avoid the short turnaround, because then the, the cost of everyone goes up for a short turnaround. But Friday, we build all the rest until whatever ungodly hour, we're often left waiting Friday night at the shop until the cold open is decided, because that is the main most important topical sketch that they tend to not write until Friday. Oh. And then they get told, you know, you got to give us something, we've got to build a set. Sometimes <laughs> we're building a set with no script. They just say it's going to be in, we love it when they say it'll be in the Oval Office because we know what that is and it's a set we have, but usually it's not. It's like, you know, when Trump's in the news and they need Mar-a-Lago and it's Trump and I'm like pulling my hair out thinking it's Friday night at at six o'clock and you're telling me we need to create a set with all the fancy decor on it that I don't have. So we do our best, but come Friday night, the shop closes down and everybody in on my team is in the studio on Saturday with, um, one exception on occasion, if the cold open really gets pushed and we know, let's say there's a, uh, debate or a press something expecting, we might see it late Friday and they might tell me open the shop Saturday and build it rare, uh-huh. but it does happen. Um, We'll have to get it before the night ends Friday, get it drawn. And I have to get on the phone with the shop and see who's willing to come into work Saturday morning. And it's usually a short morning because we've got to get it done on a truck. And also you might not realize it, but that scenery is unpainted. It gets put in a truck, driven to NBC, which is a hall. Sometimes traffic's terrible, like when the christmas time and the tree is up getting scenery in is difficult it goes down into the basement of nbc there's a good hour ride between brooklyn to there then they put it in elevators in pieces you can't the elevator's small so it might take five elevator rides to get a set up. and then the team has to put it all back together in the studio so um that stuff happens in the evenings usually of thursday and friday and during rehearsal when they not being too disruptive and then um Saturday, we do all finishing touches and rehearse. So because the way you're right, the the biggest reaction from any guests I have on the show is, wow, I didn't realize what it takes to everything moving around and all these moving parts. Um, You don't, you just see the set as a viewer finished, right? But all of this stuff has to roll, break down. The furniture all gets put on dollies and dragged out into the hallway because, if we had every set all set up nice and pretty for the show to happen, well, geez, that would be heaven. But we don't have that kind of room. No, You know, nobody, you need a huge studio. So everything breaks down and then the cameras have to move into the front of it to shoot it and the audio and the cue cards and the, you know, and the prop guys that have to throw things into the camera, shoot flash bulbs mm-hmm. if there's a photo op going on in the sketch or so. All these factors, um, make it kind of an incredible feat that, yes, you point out, is still very fascinating. And I think some of the viewers get a sense of that if they watch the show, when they see the bump shots, we call it, when they do a pull-out shot with the crane camera, it right. goes up nice and high, and, the, and you see a couple seconds of the crew running around and moving stuff. I think there are times when we reveal that to the audience, um, and people can get a little better of a sense of it, but there's no substitute for being in the studio and seeing what it's like.
1: Right. And then all of the sets. So, so, you know, some of the sets are, you know, I guess some of them might be set up like in their entirety, but then again, the the other magical part is that, that not only do you have like a million parts coming from Brooklyn and in the elevator and their parts, but then those parts are, are like folded together or stuck together in, in different parts of the studio. And when, and now on a live broadcast, you have all of these parts of a set i don't i literally i don't know how you guys do it it's like it's like they're like oh we need so and so set and then you just go oh there it is folded up leaning up against the wall you gotta you gotta find these parts and literally construct the set during the commercial break Correct. Well, so hats explain-
2: off to that's That's the studio crew. Hats off to them, by the way. They are the ones that make it all happen. That's, you know, Joe Riley and his crew uh, have been there for many years, but there's no substitute for watching this cold open uh, monologue set change. Um because you will see what the crew does and they do have to haul stuff off and yes they have to set stuff in the commercial breaks sometimes they're setting it during another sketch very quietly or you know um it it really depends on where it lands the sketches land in the show and where they're placed in the studio if they can be preset in the commercial break sometimes some of it can be reset but not the last wall and as for finding all the parts in the studio Yes, there are times when pieces even get lost, but generally (laughs) that crew knows, you know, to keep an eye on stuff and I've seen them sprinting and I used to do it sometimes myself sprinting out in the hall for a chair and saying where's the chair that's the chair for this sketch you have a minute get it in there, and you know. and you know, in a pinch, they just grab another chair from wherever and put it there. <laughs> throw
1: someone or throw a page it, off the thing and it give happen, your chair. Yes,
2: <laughs> it happens. Somebody sit here, be a chair, and they just right. squat and you sit on it. You know how the human chair position where you just right. bend. No, but um, so, so all that happens. It, it's a live show, and there's no substitute for live. It, it, it's always exciting and interesting. Um, but you it know, just, it, go yeah, ahead. I was
1: gonna, no, I'm just gonna say it just even and it's funny because i've 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 um uh, you know discussed and i i've been you know been fascinated with this even hearing this for the 19th time you know about how this happens i still can't believe it I, it's still unbelievable what happens and i think you know it's it's so funny because when when i was a page and we'll we'll talk about some of your paging in a minute yeah but you know um when i was when i was a page and, and snl would happen it would be in the lounge I didn't really, most of the pages would sit and watch SNL in the la, in the page lounge, you know, yeah. during their stays. I personally, I was actually, I loved like watching, you know, the sets and watching stuff and walking around and doing stuff. So I never really sat there and watched the show because I'm so fascinated by the amount of, literally magic is the only way to describe it. The magic that goes in to, it's more exciting to watch the behind the scenes than actually the show itself because it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I
2: I mean, I think the mechanics, that's why I do what I do, but the mechanics of making it all work and they call it a a kind of a ballet because it is a big dance. It's, it's a big dance to get it all done. Some of it is, you know, some might say it's a bit of a show, but that's just because that's the way the show evolved and had to, you had to get the scenery, you know, they ask for so much scenery meaning the producers they asked for so the cast is was seven people when the show started correct me if i'm wrong and i have to look and remember but i think it was only seven yeah. people somewhere around there well last year we were up to 21 that's triple that right and the show is still an hour and a half right so to give everybody a fair chance and all the extra cast and all you know obviously my grandfather always says throw enough shit against the wall. Some of it'll stick, right. but the point is not to be demeaning, but the, the point is we're producing enough shows so that everybody has a good shot at being on because the cast is grown. The show has grown so much that, that, that it's very difficult to um, um, get everybody in the show. And it's about what's funniest, I suppose in the, in the bottom line. Um, but that's why they might produce an extra sketch or two. When I started, we would cut one or two sketches at the end of the dress rehearsal before we started the air show. And then sometimes we'd cut one on air. We have cut definitely five sketches uh several times in, in my more recent years. Five pieces. You realize that's almost a whole nother half a show. It's practically right. another show.
1: Right. You so know? let's I want to clarify that. So again for the listeners the dress rehearsal is two hours long right correct
2: it's it's, it's over two now over two
1: hours okay and the actual live show that people see on tv is only an hour and a half correct so joe and all these one literally magicians have to pull all of this they're literally creating sets that between the dress rehearsal and the air Lorne Michaels and I guess Higgins or whoever else says, oh, by the way, you know, that 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 submarine that you just built, Uh, we're not going to use it. Right. Right. So literally you spent, you know, what seems like like from, you know, from uh, Wednesday night to Thursday morning, you know, designing, producing, building all this crazy stuff. And then when Saturday night comes in between dress and air, they're literally killing sets. Which means that, and again, how many people who work in an office, you know, who who maybe have done a report, who they worked on a month on a report, and then and then right before going to the meeting, the boss is like, oh, you know that report that you worked for for a month? We're not showing it.
2: We don't need it. We don't need it. Thank you. I mean, yeah, that must get, be crushing. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, it used to be a little more crushing. It, you become immune to it. You realize, you know, it's not personal, but often some of the stuff we put the most work into and the, it's the most complicated gets cut but that's a product of the being more complicated. You know, the simpler stuff that's basically funny in its roots and stuff tend to be stronger in my opinion. Uh, Uh, but there are more elaborate interesting sketches that that can be hysterical, but it just adds to it it exponentially. uh, You have created more reason, more things to go wrong. Uh So there is a, a, a common, uh, um, kind of saying where it's like, if you put a lot of work into it, it's definitely going to be cut. But we still take a photo of it, and there are, uh, there is some um, often they will release online pieces that were cut from the show, if if you're a a fan and you watch, you can go on the website and they'll say, cut for time, and they'll show those pieces, uh, not all, but here and there, so sometimes that means, uh, for me, that's a relief, because that means the scenery doesn't have to be saved. Like a submarine, if that got cut, I would save it and oh, find okay. out it's not coming back. But if it came back, it saves me a whole lot of work. Often, I'll wait a few weeks and throw it out. And there's times when it comes back in four weeks. And I said, Jesus, I saved it. But now I'm up against a wall when it comes to how much I can save. We have 10,000 square feet, which may seem like a lot. But man, does that fill up fast. And I just I can't convince them to spend more money on space for storage because it's just it's Again, it's an exponential result. Right. You're dealing with. I'll just save more. I'd save everything if I could.
1: So, so again, yeah. I want to touch on that too. So, again, to be clear, so here it is. You build all these sets. Some of them can be iconic, and you know, uh, I mean, there's a million iconic sets. But so here it is. You said you have ten thousand square feet to to stave stuff, but but and most people would probably think that the stuff just gets stored. But you're ta- you're saying that literally we physically don't have enough room, so we physically have just built this what what some could be considered a masterpiece, but now we're literally gonna gonna throw it in the gr- in the garbage. Is that sadly, correct? Sadly, yeah. that is wow. true. so so is there any um for the things that you do save, is there you know, do you just do your best guesstimate as to well, we're gonna save this because maybe we're gonna use it or we really like this yeah. set? you know what yes. what is one of the some of the things that you've saved over the years that that either were really cool or or you thought they might come back maybe they didn't or they did is there anything that you've saved that you're yeah, like oh I my have, god i got I, you know
2: we had these three beautiful windows you might even remember them if you were a, a fan way back but they're huge palladian arched windows okay one of them used to have a huge fan in it and there were three matching ones they were beautifully um, built out of solid oak and they were part of the early I would say early nineties, they were part of the set. So you're talking 28 plus 24 plus 10, it's 30, 40, 30 something years old easily. They were heavy, really heavy. And they came in handy here and there, but they weren't really used for sketches. They were used when we needed to do like an anniversary show or a guest band came to perform or the the film unit borrowed them a few times because they're big. and, Uh, I loved them, but, uh, the shop hated them because they were so damn heavy and bulky and hard to move when we needed them. Anyway, they got used a bunch of times by the film unit and one of them fell over and like shattered, like completely got broken up. And I knew the shop was constantly saying, can't we throw these out? Can't we throw these out? So when they got broken, uh, and they said, you know, someone almost got hurt and they were complaining to me about their weight. I said, well, then I guess it's time to throw them out. That killed me because they were part of the show history. Right. But other than that, there's not much else. Like things like cars, I saved for a long time. But after a while, I have a van that's fallen apart. But you know, if we ever need, like I hate to say it, but like a pervert van, it's a perfect pervert because <laughs> it could be beat up and and it came in handy a few times. But a van is a pain in the ass to cut to fit in the elevator because that needs to be cut into three pieces because it's a taller vehicle. Right. Um, but I still have that and. I have like maybe a McGruber desk that I liked because it was sentimental to me and I thought, why not keep it? It's not big. Uh I have uh, the Safari Planet I've had forever. I actually they got some water damage at the shop this summer and they told me that it got it got all ruined at the bottom from the water something happened. I said, let me look at it, but we'll see. That might be gone too. I might have to toss that too if it's ruined. But yeah. the stuff is built fast. Remember, you yeah. heard my schedule, so it's not like it's not poorly built, but it's certainly put together pretty quick. So it could be sometimes it just gets beat up and and broken up and handled poorly or trucked poorly or you know falls down on the way back or something stuffed in the truck and it gets damaged and it's 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 not worth keeping sometimes right. i keep a lot of curtains i've done a lot okay. of I made, i've made great efforts to try to conserve and save more and more but it's really becomes hard things like podiums i keep a lot of or plexiglass oh. podiums or you know debate podiums but remember we needed like nine debate podiums four years ago and the last five whenever the last debate was and They're all put in. They were well made, and but they're they're not going to show up again in the debate because they do nude podiums every time they four years later. So they were expensive, and I just it killed me to get rid of them. So, wow. And then there's items like the presidential podium that's been used over and over and over again. It's so beat up. Every once in a while, I'll ask for money. Say, can I rebuild these couple items that we use a lot? And I will. And the old one goes in the dumpster because you know it's beat up. Right. I noticed it's funny
1: because I um like for the um weekend update set and again I am just so ain't like I always look at the back wall. Um and yeah. you know, you could either see the seams or you could see, you know, just um, you know, where. Yeah, so yeah. So how does, so, and j- just randomly, so on that weekend update wall, is that replaced often or is that you use the same one all the time or? Yeah, no, that's a the- great
2: question. So the weekend update set tends to stay the longest, Um, but because it usually runs for multiple seasons um and, but when it's over, it's usually over. So uh this one has been up for the longest and it's the first time in a while that I recall actually, other than repainting, uh, that we had to rebuild the set oh really it's been up for yeah because you did notice that was a big issue and we talked about it in our department over and over again the seams look terrible the crew lifts the set with their hands every show twice and that's just assuming you know so and there's sometimes you know they just finish their cheetos and their whatever and, <laughs> and their fingers and hands are. we made them wear white gloves for a couple seasons when they moved the update set because it was so sensitive to the the hands and stuff but after a while you just can't it just takes a beat so it was showing visibly showing that the seams were bad and the hand marks you could see where it was dirtier on one side and clean on the other right um we rebuilt it i think last year um and it was a lot of headaches it's still not perfect because the record of it it had been over 10 years that it's up uh, maybe it's not 10 but it's been up for a long time with jost and Che. and um it was due it was really really due so we just did it new but
1: um wow well so let's i guess because again i we could probably talk for a thousand hours so let's i'll we'll we'll, we'll do sort of some lightning rounds because there's a lot of information yeah, let's i want to quickly because it. yeah, it'll go so, on forever i'm already
2: so, i'd be bored i'd already shut the interview <laughs> joe's
1: say. already napkin napping so i guess one is just the the actual snl set so the grand central set and the opal clock and then where the guest band is Yes. So uh, clearly that, to my knowledge, that's been up quite a long time. Those. Yes, those that was sets. done.
2: So that was de- actually, de- thank you for asking. That was designed by me. That was an idea that I had pitched to the rest of the designers. I was fairly new and it was 2003.
1: Oh, my and God. I had
2: done a lot of models and a lot of stuff. And, you know, you're on the radio, but if you you could see the model here in my studio. Uh, uh, let, me, let
1: me just I'm <laughs> going to describe it to the audience. So basically over Joe's shoulder is a little model literally a a a almost a you know it's a copy of the where the guest host comes out and the band um so he built uh he built uh matter of fact maybe i'll take a screen oh you know i'll take a screenshot of this and put this you know what yeah i'll take a screenshot of this and then i'll put it on the on the on the uh, page in history podcast so this is that is amazing so definitely check out the website a page in i'll take a screenshot of that and put it up on the website so joe has the set sitting right there and that's over 26 years ago is it or whatever it's been 2003 so yeah 20 so,
2: 20 years anyway right how long uh, is it
1: 20 oh 23 you
2: said yeah 20 yeah oh three wow. it was done so at the time eugene was doing wicked he's the head production designer and i was left kind of they said yeah go for it you like that And I I did the model and I shared it with Keith and Leo and Eugene and they all loved it and said, yeah, go for it. And they were busy that summer and didn't really participate hardly at all. So I have photos of, you know, me having it installed and all. And you could find it online. But my idea was that this is Grand Central and it's like an arrival place of New York. And so is SNL in a way as a performer and and a comedian, you've arrived if you're hosting the show. And it has been a set that I actually feel tired of, and I wish we could do a new one, but we can't get Lauren to. Lauren, we've asked a few times, and Lauren said, No, no, no I like it. It's like an iconic set. So it has stayed. But the music side uh, has changed multiple times. And in fact, those of you that tune in this season, which is the 49th season, we're just installing probably in the next week uh, or two the new music set, which is very similar to the first one, but different. Uh, It's a lot of windows, a big bank of windows. The trouble with the music set is like everything at the show has evolved to become something different. So early uh, on, the music guests would come and we would encourage them to do whatever they want when they perform, meaning the guest band. And often they would just bring their own set and put it inside our set and you would never see the set. So Uh, In a way, we lost kind of track of how important a music set is. Is it, could it just be what it is? And it it went through a few changes in the hopes that the guest bands would like it more or maybe not bring their own stuff. But they all still do what they want because they want to do something unique. So um, it's now a little simplified, just Windows, and we'll see if it even premieres at all because the bands are still allowed to do whatever they want when they come.
1: So in other words the um the cuz currently it it looks like part of um Grand Central so all of that has been removed it's just it's a totally different look of, of No uh, or is it...
2: let me be more clear um it has always taken on a Grand Central theme to to okay. pair up with the home base but okay. it changed from being the in in the et- the interior view that i like as juxtaposed to the exterior where the mute where the host comes out and mm-hmm. it was all the windows in the section in grand central where you you know the main stage oh right right and then it changed a little bit more to be and it had a gate for a track entrance and stuff mm-hmm. that right. changed and became more generic and uh for a while it was like some some storefronts from the grand central building oh, okay. mixed with some of the gates and stuff. And, and then it evolved, it changed again to be similar. They were always similar themes, parts of the station interior. And this is a uh, Keith's little thing this year of, of making it back to kind of similar to the first, which was basically all plain windows, but it wow. is a bit generic and it's not so literal as I had originally done. It's a little more, um, uh, how can you say collage of the pieces and elements of Grand Central. Wow. So yes, it's I'm always maintained that. And the clock was always my idea for the foreground piece. Cause it's such a recognizable uh, piece that was difficult to build. Uh, and it's showing its age, but it's, um, it's a nice opening and closing shot. And it was a struggle for me to get the dirt at the time, Beth McCarthy was directing when I put that set in and um, it wasn't her so much as the cameraman and, um, lighting, having difficulty shooting this the way I wanted it. But with some persistence, we got it. It's been the same shot since then as kind of like a foreground piece that they move across.
1: Right. Um, so again, I'm just going to clarify that. So again, everybody, you know, in the open of SNL, you have this opal clock and the clock gets, correct me if I'm wrong, um, you know, does get lowered into position right. and they have a um, the crane shot i guess is it's it's up and shows it and it sort of passes by the clock but then once it i guess passes by the clock the clock does get risen into the ceiling sort of out of the way is that correct correct. it flies
2: in for the opening shot they do a shot across and then it flies out and it's been there for a long time and then we've had problems with the mechanisms and stuff because a real clock like that would be costly but it's you know, I have to laugh because it's literally like a $5 rectangular square clock that's stuck into the back with batteries. So uh, oh, so it th-
1: actually, it actually, oh, that's interesting. So it really is keeping time. It uh, is keeping time. I figured time if you just show if, it at like that yes, one. Even if it's 30. not
2: great time, it's keeping time. And they set it every, every show. And usually we come back from the summer and the batteries are dead and we put new batteries in and it's a pain in the ass to do because, you know, it's the round plexiglass, but it was a challenge to make that clock. It was quite a challenge. I will not forget it long, you know, in, 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 a, in a long time. But yeah, I had to have a ball that size turned and then hollowed out. And the people that turned it for me, they wouldn't hollow it out because they were, it was dangerous to, 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 to turn a ball at that high speed and hollow it out. And then the shop was stuck trying to, you know, hollow it out and put the mechanisms in it. Really? So
1: so the so the 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 like we see I guess the faces on either side. Yes, so you're saying So it's not just a it's not just a uh plate, let's say. Uh it's actually a uh, one continuous piece of plastic, I guess. Correct.
2: It's a three-dimensional Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Oof, when you Oops. Oops, oh, oh, I... I'm fine. But okay. I have a little ornament that you could it just fell, but that um, you could also show from the still from another still it's not part of my model, but Oops. this is basically what it looks like, you know, and you'll know it from the station. This was a gift given to me when someone found it as an ornament, but this oh, is what so it's cool. like it's really like a, a four faced piece that hangs and comes in right Wow. And that's that's how it works. So it it may look like one face, but it is a a three dimensional ball that was turned. Oh my
1: God! So you literally, when so when you say turn, they they turned it from a square block of plastic and just cut off the The edge. Square block of wood. Oh, it's wood. It's not even
2: solid block of wood. Oh
1: wow! And then and then you had to go through the top to carve it out to put the mechanisms inside. Correct.
2: The company the company turned it and they were able to make me this the the. The pieces this they were able to turn the faces in terms of locating them, but they wouldn't hollow it all out. And wow. then they're a company that does uh, the ornamentation in in brownstones. They've been around for many, many years, American wood column. and um they do the they do composite glue and sawdust wow. to make the shaped pieces in in older buildings that you see in your ceiling moldings, and, you know, all those ornate pieces you see. Those are made out of a composite of glue and sawdust, and then they're pressed into molds. And visiting that shop was amazing. They have all the old hand wood carved blocks, and they press the glue into them and pull them out like a cookie cutter, right. like, like a stamp. Wow. Um, and they still do that for a lot of older buildings. Wow.
1: So that clock, I mean, so the funny thing is that clock, I mean, I didn't realize that, again, it's One of a kind. Fat- yeah i mean it's it's funny they they say that the the real clock is like three million dollars i don't know yes. what the what the real cost is but uh but but the amount of work that went into your clock i didn't realize there was so much work that went into it that that you know and again like let's say they switch out the sets i mean that clock <laughs> you know should, should one of the little, only
2: things i'd like when i retire yeah i'm like the sure clock way.
1: should definitely not find its way into into the trash it should be in it should really be in a museum And if it's not in a museum and they're going to throw it out, that at least should be in your in your house.
2: (laughs) It's huge, though. You know, but yes. So I remember many details about it. First of all, I just drew it. Drawing it was fine, but I had to find curved plexiglass faces. That's very hard to find. So we found what we could in in milk plexiglass curved pieces. Of course, you could have vacuum formed them, I suppose, and custom done them all, but you're looking to save time and money. We we were up against the wall to get this done. It was expensive, the whole project. Um, So the faces curved determined my ball size. And then from that point on, we had to figure out how do you actually put the the numbers on the curved clock? Because often you do a vinyl transfer. Well, vinyl transfers aren't easy to press onto a curved surface. So we had to segment the piece and, you know, I mean, these are all little things, but details, but even the hands of the clock, we bought the aluminum, they had to gently bend them all. So they were curved just like right. the real one. And um, and even, yeah, so all the details, lighting it from inside, making the mechanics work actually was a quick brainstorm, but at first I was trying to get it to work like a real clock and I realized they're better off just buying the cheap little square things and putting them in because we don't want to see any mechanism. Through I was those- just
1: going to say, if you, if you let it from the inside, the light you would see, Depending on how it was done, you would literally see the 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 black of the mechanism. Well, there you go. I
2: give that a challenge for the listeners. When you watch next time, look closely. You will see. You'll see a square a black, a small black square behind the middle hub of the clock. Oh. It's the mechanism, but it's just small enough that you, you don't really oh. notice it. And there is some front light on it, but it is lit from inside.
1: Oh, that's funny. And uh, yeah, because it again, everybody literally everyone sees it every single show for all these years and it's funny because not only did you have to not only did you create it but it has to look like the real thing so yeah. it's not like it's not like you could do it and be like well you know let's make it a blue whatever or let's use right. gold no it's got to look like the actual grand central clock which is uh, yes
2: and the, the scenic artist drove me crazy i think i must have bought them 50 50 boxes of the gold leaf they, there's a special gold leaf you put right. on to try to paint it to make it look brass shiny brass and it just wasn't working for me and i got to the point where they did it so many times that then just paint it gold paint it the <laughs> best you could and they wow. painted it and it was fine but that gold leaf if it's done properly it would have really looked like the brass that it is um, wow. but i could have certainly not make it brass wow. and this year we looked at it last year and I, I made a comment and said can you guys do me a favor please when when it's quiet and the scenics are there, the clock needs to be dusted off and painted. It's filthy because mm-hmm. it's up in the air and it's been up there twenty years. So, uh, and we painted it for the first time in a while.
1: Oh, so it was just recently touched up. So yeah, going we into-
2: touched it up last season.
1: Oh wow, uh, and then going into well, we we I guess we don't really know. Is do we have a date? Are you is the show uh, coming back soon? i have a date
2: tonight but that's different
1: (laughs) that's a whole different no
2: um we we have no date because as you listener, i don't know when you're listening to this so it could depend on that but uh we're headed into right now it's uh we're headed into the 49th season but the writers and actors strike is still in uh is still happening so we have not received any schedule yet uh and there's a lot of doubt and question as to whether or not this season will even start before you know the holidays we're not that far off right Right. it's already september right It, it is september 7th so 2023 right
1: yeah now it's funny the um the uh because we're going into the 50th anniversary show um, and I know that Lauren, this is a big deal for his 50th anniversary show, which, you know, rumors has it that he, it might be his last 50th anniversary or yeah. you know, last show. But it's funny because if if 49, you know, there's always a chance that 49 may or may not happen or maybe a half Correct. a season. So it kind of, yeah. doesn't, kind of doesn't count. So, so yeah. it's kind of weird. Like, it, it, you know, it would be really kind of bittersweet if 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 49 was sort of a half of a season or whatever. And then he, yeah. they went into well, a full David, 50th.
2: It wouldn't be the first time we've had seasons cut short and there were a few seasons. I don't remember historically exactly, but there's a few books you can look it up in Um that the show had very, very short seasons. Mm.
1: Um Actually, I'm going to bring, you know, remember, do you remember Ken Hamill? Do you remember Ken? Ken Hamill, who I know is listening to this episode. Yeah, I know the Ken, name. I yeah. Ken Hamill is, he is, the he was actually the first guest on a page in history tv he is the resident expert when it comes to all things programming so ken Hommel, if you're listening which i know he is hey ken um yeah ken he uh he will know he'll know exactly uh which episodes were short uh and all that other fun stuff so maybe maybe he can maybe we'll have a note section on on the page in history tv that tv sure. website but, um, so, okay. So again, we could chat forever. So I'm going to, we'll, we were, we will go, I want to just get through a couple of things because what you get, what you said so far is so fascinating. We'll, we'll do some lightning thing, lightning rounds. Um, let's just talk about Don Pardo. Um,
2: yeah, so Don was great. Well, Don, it's sad I gave you some names because they were people that my paths have crossed with and have passed. And Don was just a fixture on the show, you know, and of course we loved him. He was the sweetest guy ever. And he comes from the old school. But I don't know if you know, he was a, he was a very well-known announcer before SNL happened. Mm-hmm. And um, he would hang by the coffee machine, and he just was a sweet, sweet guy, and never had a bad word to say. And as he got older, you know, it was great to see him. <laughs> I could still see him with his coffee cup at the at the at the guests, you know, at the at the craft service station there. But right. he never had to really stir his coffee because his hand was so shaky. <laughs> at the end, when I would see him, he would be constantly shaking that coffee cup, and you know. Um, but I always uh, had deep appreciation for him. And, um, you know, that was it. He came in, physically came in and did the show live for years until really towards his end before as he got ill. He was home back in Arizona with some family and they would have him go into a studio and record it uh, um, and record it pre-recorded, I think, and played it into the show. But only the last few years. And then Daryl took over, which not everyone knows, but most people should. But Daryl Hammond. There was a, a show that uh, Don was sick. His, he had throat problems. And I'll never forget, I heard the announcement and I thought, it sounds a little bit off, but not much. Is Don okay? And I said, no, he's sick. And and I went over to the voiceover booth and Daryl Hammond came out of it. He was doing a Don uh, a Don Pardo impression and right. it was so good that you could barely tell. But right. anyway, that's the Don Pardo story. Well,
1: let me just touch on a couple. One is, again, which is which is amazing. Here it is that that absolutely don pardo could have just recorded the open i mean he literally could could have just recorded the open and they could have just played it but for those listening don pardo there's a booth and he literally held up a piece of paper right correct me if i'm wrong watch the the open of the show and he said you know it's saturday night live and he did and he read the whole thing read every time you know so for all of that time it literally and again this just goes back to the to the magic of the show you know they could have recorded it but it was you know was done live and then when don um uh got you know got a little bit uh you know getting older and, and getting you know he did move to arizona but they and i know they tried to keep him doing it for a while while he was in arizona and they record i guess they did record it and then they played it recorded and then i guess eventually when he passed away that's when daryl ev- uh, eventually took, took over. over you know yes um, and i knew like as a page I, as, and I had the SNL assignment and of course I was just in the building and I saw Don all the, all the time. Uh, Again, I would always um, have conversations with him because, you know, again, it's, it's really, it's like touching because, you know, I'm, I'm walking around, I see Don Pardo. I mean, this man is, is the, he is the legendary announcer. He he did, he did all the game shows. I mean, he did everything and to just sit and talk with him and, you know, you're like, and again, that's what I wish, you know, the young kids today. I mean, I was so in in awe of him, and just to listen to him talk and just tell stories, that is something that can never be uh, replaced or duplicated. And and it was just an honor to have spoken with him. Um, okay, so we'll move on to Hal Wilner. Yes, well, Hal. Yeah. Yeah. Tell tell us about Hal.
2: Well, Hal Wilner was a brilliant, brilliant man, and uh, one of the people we lost to COVID, which was very sad. But Hal, I didn't really know him intimately uh, like I would have liked to, but he constantly popped into our design office and would make funny little comments, and I would have small conversation with him all the time on a Saturday to come in, and he always had kind of, I don't know those of you that know him, but he always had kind of like a slowish kind of speech and He'd be like, "Well, I don't know about this band, you know," and he'd make. Tell us what he
1: does. What what was his exact title, or what did he do? Well, that is a good question. I can't
2: say for sure. We'll look it up if you want to do your little Q and A's after. But he was responsible for all the musical content that was licensed. I believe he Mm. was a prolific library of music, and if you went to him, which I did several times, and said, "Like, you know, Don, I have this." uh, I'm sorry, not Don. Hal, I have this piece, which I did, and I had a piece that was a, you probably remember this, I had a piece that was a time lapse of the Grand Central set being loaded in. Well, now the thing is, I recorded that. You did. With Mark
1: Barry, we set up a camera in 8H. Do you you actually still have that? Do you have it? Yeah, I have it somewhere. Oh, if you, I would love to see, because, yeah, because. And again this was you know like- we'll have to do I have
2: an, I have a box full of mini dv tapes of my process of designing the grand central set and in it is also the time lapse um but they're all on mini dv
1: I have a I have a dv player a real a real one uh, a couple of them actually because we set up for the listening we we set up a camera in the SNL set and did a time lapse That's right we have you. the yeah we did it so that would be so cool if you could find it, if you either, either you, I don't know if you want to send it to me, but if you want to send it to me, I'll dub it over Or if you have the ability to do it. But that would be so cool to p- also put up on the website, because again, it's so cool because you literally see the yeah. ins- insanity that that goes on.
2: Well, I think we have a project ahead of us then the project being that if I could get all my mini DVs to you, maybe we could digitize them somehow and edit them because they're basically hours and hours of me going around grand central, picking out details before I designed it. It's me at the shop with the carpenters showing them uh, what I want built in my drawings and how I want them built. And then the pinnacle of it all was you doing the time-lapse of the set being loaded in.
1: Wow. Okay. So, so, so basically, if you know, uh, I'm I'm game for anything. So whatever you have, I'll take. I'll edit. We'll put it together. You know, whatever you want to do with it. Because yeah, I do, we'll have to. Again, do it. and it's it's it's. You know, sadly, it'll die in that box, you know, if we don't do anything with it. So it is somehow
2: online somewhere, but the quality is so bad. It's so digitized. And so I mean, it's so pixelated that it's it's terrible quality over time. And I think the the original tapes are probably pretty clear. But I remember I sat with an NBC editor with that time lapse because there was moments there was just nothing nothing happened and we had to compress it all so that it and how that's why we brought it up i went to how with this time lapse once it was edited and i said listen can you find me a piece of music for this i was thinking something like kind of like i don't know circusy or calliope or something that's very fun of you know that that it's being assembled and he came to me the next day he put things in listen to this and he gave me like two three options i was like that's perfect and he he gave me the first one he gave me. I was like, that's perfect. He was a, a brilliant, brilliant man. And you, there's a beautiful New York Times article about him when he passed. If you want to read a little about him, but just a very eccentric and interesting man. He was part of a lot of lot more than SNL. SNL is just a little little bit of his life. But he produced albums with Marianne Faithful and. Uh, uh, um, Oh my God, he has a beautiful album of all that. He's one of the first guys to take Disney songs and have them re-recorded, And it was quite a bear for him to get permission. But there's like some really beautiful, interesting offbeat recordings of uh, uh, Disney music and uh, um, very different than you would ever hear. And I I love that album. I think it's called Disney After Dark or something. Anyway, so that's my story. That's amazing.
1: Okay, so um, next thing is the film crew or the film unit. Is there yes, one? The is there unit, one
2: film unit or what? Yeah, the it's film unit is a fascinating uh, uh, evolution. The film unit started with what I would call people like Tom Schiller in the early years. Mm-hmm. Those people who I'm still friends with and is still living. I love Tom Schiller. He did all of those Schiller Vision early movies that were just short movies that were produced outside of the show not live but produced edited and put into the show he did a beautiful gilda Radner one La he Dol- did the one the when gilda. everyone
1: died when 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 right he's the one that did like um when john belushi, he did the, belushi
2: the most famous one is called uh, uh um it's the john belushi one where everybody
1: um, died except don't that, look
2: anyway. back in anger and he told me the story of this it's fascinating and he, they, he there's a book of about tom schiller called i think it's called um nothing lasts forever or nothing that was his movie he made a feature movie in, in the 80s and it never got released wow. um but uh and everyone from snl was in it and he was one wonderful wonderful director still with us great guy but anyway uh i digress i was talking about um
1: just about oh, that, that movie yeah so he movie.
2: used to do those pieces al brooks uh right albert brooks did a albert brooks of yeah yeah And Jim Signorelli did a lot of them, very beautiful work. Um, Anyway, the film unit evolved and in the last, I'd say 20 years, it became this thing where they wanted to produce a lot more online content. I think the Lonely Island boys or the Lonely Island people started with, they just were rogue and they do their own stuff and bring it to the show. So they weren't working under any blanket of the show. But as it evolved in the last few years, they would come to us to design a kitchen or to design something. Mm -hmm. And it required so much attention that we all went through, meaning the four production designers, all went through the process of helping design and then giving up. I would get (laughs) to the point where I would say, I can't spend my whole week with you guys on this. I designed it. I have four other sets and I'm overseeing the building of 12 other sets. And, you know, you guys need someone to focus on your film unit. So they won't credit me with this probably, but it's true. I finally said to the producers there and I said, listen, why don't you build your own team? You guys should just be your own little umbrella. Get a production designer that's dedicated to this. Get a crew that's dedicated because they would always come to the show. And I <clears throat> I hate to say steal, but they would steal whatever they could. People, products, things, ladders, uh, jacks. <laughs> They'd be out on location and send an intern up to pick up two jacks because they didn't have any jacks to make the set stand or what have you. Right. Anyway, it evolved and became, in my opinion, really bad in terms of the organizational process. And um, I won't say anything negative, but the point is, eventually they did this. Yeah, they they basically decided that they needed two film crews, three film crews. I think they have four film crews now, and they shoot some really beautiful work. And they do do what we do, but they do it with one less day uh, because they have to shoot. Uh, they build the set Thursday in the same shop as me this is why there's a little tension with us but I'm fine with it But they get the better carpenters because the stuff needs to get done and then I'm left waiting a little Thursday and it slows down the process I always thought they should also have their own shop Yeah. but anyway they do that then they take it on Friday Thursday night it delivers, gets set up and they stay all night and order their painters to paint all night on Thursday night and then Friday they set up the shoot and it's done, wrapped up shooting on Friday, but it's got to be edited Friday night into Saturday morning and be ready for the show Saturday.
1: Are they shooting so, that? Where are they shooting the the those sets in in a, in A H or no? So somewhere else.
2: Some are on location, and they finally also, as I had suggested too, was they got their own studio. I said you should have a space. I mean, you guys. They would rent a space according to each week, and remember, just like I told you the fast track of the show, it's the same fast track for them. The pre-tapes in the early days of Schiller, Al Brooks, and Signorelli, at the beginning of the season, August, September, they would sit down with all the scripts that the writers were asked to write for pre-tapes, and they would pick three of them or four of them to produce, and they'd produce them over the course of the season. There wasn't a hard schedule. Now they wanted the topicalness and the, and the relativity of the host being in it. You can't have the host in it if you don't shoot it the week of the show. So that's why it's moved into this kind of crunch, same crunch as us. Um, they have, they do an incredible amount of work. They spend a fortune. They get it all done in, in one day less, and it's, it's mind-boggling. But it's yeah. really a massive expense. I don't know how they tolerate it, to be honest.
1: There was, I guess, because I think I had asked you about this one, which may have been the exception. But, but they did the, was it the, um, they did something recently where there was a, oh, Steve Martin and, and it was Steve Martin and, uh, and, um, Steve Martin, and uh, Martin Short.
2: And yes. Well, what
1: was, what was that well Because I mean it was, and I think I'd asked you about it because it was. I was like. This is insane. This is like a movie. What's going on here? Well,
2: Dave, you struck a nerve, and I will tell you the story <laughs> since you've asked. Okay. First of all, I don't all, want anyone in trouble, but I, I No, know. no, it's fine. It's okay. fine. But I'm saying um this year, that was the last, that was just this past season. It was a um uh it was a piece called Scrooge, I guess. I don't yeah, know Scroo- it was right.
1: yeah, it was,
2: Martin Short and, and 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 uh um and Steve Martin were the hosts. And they did this elaborate, it was a very elaborate piece, one of the most they've ever done. It was like a two-story building. The scenery was like 25 feet high because they needed, you know, windows for them to look out mm-hmm. of and throw the coins. And and then they had to build the street scene as well. And they had everything in it, if you watch it, was all built in that day. And they did really? a lot of digital work too.
1: Oh, my God. It was insane. It, it, looks, listen, it looked like a movie. It
2: much to cost as much as, the, as much as the scenery from the live show for the pre-tape easily. So they did all the digital work and everything. Um, And it was a tremendous undertaking. But what happens now is, uh, well, we'll leave it at that. That So this is the evolution of the film unit is something to consider and to realize that it's no longer this little group of people running through the hallways with cameras. Remember, they did like laser cats and stuff like that. It was all done very campy. And then production stepped up over the years, and now they're their own. They're their right. own. It's a that animal. is a
1: full, yeah. Cause it, cause, it, and again, cause I said to myself, and I think that's what I asked. So I'm like, knowing what you have on your plate, I'm like, how on earth could you have possibly done both? I mean, you physically, like, there's physically only 24 hours in a day. So I'm like, there's no way you could have done that, or, or, or right. how did they do that, or where did they shoot it? So you said, I mean, basically, I guess they, to do, and it was so funny because it's true. There was a, it was like a two-story building. There was a whole yeah. street scene. There was the the graphics were pretty elaborate, where they were throwing coins and I forget what yes. cutting us out off. Graphics were
2: elaborate. It the special pretty... effects were elaborate. Look at that wall alone. Now uh, there that that whole twenty-story building front was all vacuum-formed brick plastic. Oh really? I, I think they used forty sheets of brick or something more than I use in three episodes. Oh my uh, god. Um, and then it all had to be painted. So there's this big kind of struggle, I think, in the industry and technology. And it brings up another good point of, you know, the technology can help, but it, it, in my opinion, it's like the law, uh, what is it called? The, I can't think of it now, but the, the, the law of energy or what is whatever it is, you know, there's still always this much energy spent to get here. In right. other words, they might spend more money on special effects and save on scenery, but in the end it's still kind of the same and sometimes it can become even more costly because you're creating a whole new animal it's our industry when we do scenery for the show it's all live scenery built out of wood built out of whatever we need to build it out of painted and put up as best we could so when we do get an elaborate building i'm frustrated because i can't just make these custom-made curly q rococo you know fancy design um stuff I just can't I can't do it but um I make do with whatever we have a router and they could route the shapes and we mm. could we could you know have them painted but there's a lot of things that they asked for that I just I love the old school technology even like the Exorcist in my opinion it was literally a lift a hydraulic lift that we own it's a flat wow. lift it had a big bed to it but it was what I had and we felt it was too big, but it was what I had. So um, in many ways, you just do the best you could. There was a famous sketch too that we loved that was, uh, I think it was the Jean Valjean, the John Mullaney lobster sketch. And they needed two turntables. We don't even have one turntable. We make it. So we went to rent one. We found one. And the company only had one. We had to go find another one. They didn't match. They had to come to the shop and be set up and make them match their heights and their diameters and all that. And then the set had to be built on top of it. So there's a lot of technology that the film unit can use now because they have their editors, they have their post-production teams, but SNL, we're live. We don't do any of that. I mean, if there's a little, sometimes we call it like an opening montage or something like when we would do a sketch, like a Ricky Lake fake sketch, for example, I'm dating myself, of course, but they might do a little montage at the beginning, but it would never be very complicated. Right. So you look at that piece and, you know, you tell me, but that that's a very detailed, elaborate piece. And that whole team, that's a whole different team that does that. That's a completely different team.
1: Which, again, it would have to, like I said, and, and you mentioned even the vacuum-formed brick. So uh, that brick, as is the painting that you do on the sets, those that stuff is just, what, plastic... You know, a plastic, Yeah, just well, one... this is, this well, is what...
2: for an in-person interview at some point with a camera. But yes, if you go to the shop and tour through, you will see we have fiberglass molds and a big machine that's easily, it's an ancient machine. It's a huge vacuum form machine. It has a long history that it belonged to NBC before Mike Stiegelbauer built his shop. Wow. NBC closed up the shop. The piece of equipment went up to Eugene Lee's. He bought it and it went up to Rhode Island. He had nowhere to put it or set it up. And in the end, Stiegelbauer got, they made a deal and sent it back to Mike Stiegelbauer who hooked it all up. And we use, we pull brick and cinder block and that stuff all out of, they buy rolls of thin plastic. They put it into the machine, they heat it up and with a vacuum, it sucks down the shape of those, those brick stone uh, corrugated metal. And we can work in plastic. It's a lot easier.
1: And then, and then, then then uh, then somebody has to paint it to make it look like brick or stone or absolutely so again like and i don't know i don't know if anyone again who's listening if you've ever tried to paint you know a brick of what you know or something you know yeah it's 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 paint red paint that you know like like the fact that you have to have like this cannot be done by a, a mere mortal like, you have to actually be a real artist to be able to paint plastic-formed brick or any of these other materials to look like the real thing and, you know, in that time and realistically on air. So Yeah, again, no these, question. Listen, right, the these guys scenic
2: are... artists on the show are phenomenal. Their right. work is so good uh, that I, I, I don't even I, – I turn to them now if I need something done because – You know, I always thought it's something I'd like to learn, too. It's a craft in and of itself. It is phenomenal, phenomenal, real brick, real stone, real cinder block. We show them pictures and boom, they produce it. And it is a lot of work to do. Again, two days. They don't have Wednesday and they don't have Thursday because by Thursday, what have I built? I started at seven in the morning building. Nothing's in the studio until at least the earliest noon, one o'clock. And that's on a good day. And it's oh, usually just because it's stuff that we've built before. It's already primed or painted. It's stuff that I have in stock, an right. occasional saved set. But um, and
1: then and then even the floors, uh, the, uh, yeah. the floors are also right. It, it's it's normally, again, for the listeners, it's just a cement floor. But right. if they need a wooden floor or carpet or some other floor, they will physically paint that floor onto the onto yes the we're left floor, with two correct?
2: options there are occasions if it's a carpet or something we could roll out cut and buy and roll out a piece of carpet or a piece of linoleum we do do that sometimes with a wood floor but generally if it's sitting on the concrete floor in the studio for ease of moving things around and not having to roll up a ground surface before all the props get put down it's better to paint
1: <laughs> it just again i don't think anyone has any idea that that like if someone said to somebody, oh, by the way, go paint a rug on that floor and then the painters that OK and they do it and it looks realistic. Yeah, it looks like a real the- thing. I, I, again, I don't think anybody has any idea that that even, even a
2: wood floor, you know, there's thousands of different kinds of wood floor. Right. We Show them a picture. We would like it to be a whitewash. oak hardwood floor. Boom. They they do it. It's not like wood floor. will get it close. It's, right. it's what we're looking for. It's. Um, like- and they insane. do an amazing job of everything. Everything. I mean, even the detailed graphics, the same thing, the technology we're talking about. We have a graphics person now that if we need a signage, she prints it. But we used to have the painters just paint the signage on a piece of wood. or on a, They would hand paint all that. Now, it allows the production to step up a bit in terms of the quality and extra details. But the signage you see on the wall, we send out to a vendor. Our graphics person draws it. Sends it out, cuts it, and glues it together in layers sometimes. And you know, you get yourself a W a CNBC logo or uh whatever a W MSNBC logo for the front of a desk.
1: Right. Now it's funny you mentioned that. So, and again, for the listeners, so when we see the CNN you know report or NBC report or Fox report. And you have the Fox logo, you have it maybe on the back of the set or you have a lower third where it's like graphically, like, you know, you have both. Yeah. Those signs on the set are actually Fox or actually real logo sets. I mean, they're really because now me, I used to work at WNBC and basically all of the logos at WNBC, I personally oversaw so so all the mic flags i designed the in the studio i helped over you know build those things the the neon wnbc sign that was in our lot in the hallway i put in there so here it is i'm spending money on building like logos for wnbc and you you guys are literally doing the exact same thing for a sketch for everything yeah <laughs> it's like it it, it seems insane yeah. and, and and i know Fort how Center, much
2: cnbc You know, yes, any logo when we did like, you know, the the Drew Barrymore show or The View, all those things. Now, sometimes we get away with a slate, like you said, we could do it graphically, uh, you know, in in, uh, through, you know, an overlay or a lower third. But when it's on the set and it also has to match. So when it's a fictional thing, we got to make sure that it matches the graphics at the top of the show.
1: Right. It's so, And again, that the, the, that that ele- that level of uh, detail is is it's really it, it's so extraordinary to think, because, again, even me as a 10 year old kid, when I would watch and even to this day and I see logos and I think I'm like, I'm like, they had to build like, let's say it was a neon sign, because I know you've had neon yeah. signs. I know it's funny for w- uh, quick WNBC story. But when yeah. I built I built the WNBC uh, Peacock and we mounted it in the hallway of WNBC but I remember when I went to the sign place, and I think it was it was probably only $400, $500 for a sign, but this was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever it was. But I remember it was funny. I said to the guy, I said, you know, okay, you're going to pack it up and, you know, you'll ship it. And I said, you are going to pack that, right? Like, you're going to pack it really securely. And I, he literally said, no, no, we, we, we've we done this before. No problem. Yeah. So they literally ship it in a van, talk about you bringing all this merchandise, you know, yeah. stuff from Brooklyn. They bring it over in a van and they open it up broke. the van and it was 9,000 pieces. Yeah. And I, and I was like, okay, great. Well, now you could make a new sign and then you could pack it the way I asked you to pack it and then we'll hang it up, which they did. But again, everything is so delicate and the fact that they couldn't even this is a real sign for from a real company for a real station and that they couldn't even chip over without breaking it yes you could only imagine again what
2: i love neons (laughs) we use them and they look great but the problem with neons is all the scenery moves around and a neon rarely makes it to the live show (laughs) really breaks and once it breaks it's broke what are you going to do so um we did have a deal with our neon person and we also I don't know how long it took them to make a your sign. But if we need a, it took neon, a week, it took we a week on Thursday and right. they got to make it on Friday. So we have it for Saturday. Right. Right. So exactly. it costs us about four times what it costs for the normal sign.
1: Yeah, it would take actually probably when I first ordered the sign, it probably took a week or two for them to, to yes. do it. Probably took them, you know, by the time they packed it up, shipped it, then when it was broken, and then when they had to redo it, it probably took another week. Yeah. So, literally, it's it probably a month. Cost
2: us, they cost us thousands of dollars. And right. then, what do we do with them after? You're right. lucky if they make it back in one piece. Right. Often, they're just thrown away because you can't even ship them. But right. I stored a lot of them, and we made a deal with the neon company that no matter what, when you build us a neon, you have to put it in a plexiglass box completely encased. Mm. Right. and then deliver it that way and then at least if it got banged around it would hold up a little bit longer but it still can break inside yeah. the box i mean they're fragile i still have we threw a lot of them out but I, I kept a few of them because they survived so i have a bunch i could show you but yeah. uh,
1: actually you know it again be- if you're bo- if you're bored and want to because i you actually I remember you and that's today for those for those Joe, literally you're like, um what is it uh, G- Geppetto is that
2: Geppetto, uh, like, uh-huh. you, G- Gepetto.
1: Gepetto. you yeah. have your Joe has like um uh like a workshop and and i'm I'm jealous because like when I'm in my apartment trying to build something, I'm like taking the garbage pail and I'm hacking it with a hacksaw and I'm yeah. falling dropping it on the floor and I'm so Joe has like this literally I don't know if it's to me, it's state of the art. I mean, you have like this amazing thing that you built where you could build all these amazing things um so i remember you showed me you had some of these neon signs floating around but
2: yeah so i had like a lounge one and a couple of them they sat for years in our shop and we just didn't have storage room anymore i tried we used to give them back to the neon company to hold them figuring if we need them or need to edit them or need to do something or they broke or they need to be re sometimes the gas leaks out and they ought to find the leak and but um the company went out of business, and when we found oh. a new company, um, the old comp- they didn't want the old company's sign. So they all went to the shop, and they sat for over 15 years. And that's when I said they- we moved shops, and the shop said, we're going to move these neon signs again because they're never going to make it. That You know, they're like bulls in a China shop with stuff there. And I threw a lot out. But some of them I just took home because but they're crazy. Who wants, like, you know, a car that says free delivery and big. Neon <laughs> well, that's
1: four. you know, it's it's funny because it's true, um, you know, even and it's funny in, um, you know, I live in the city and my brother has a house, you know, in, in Westchester, or whatever. So his basement is filled with boxes and boxes of my crap that I haven't yeah. looked at, looked at in 20 years. You know, on one hand, it's like, well, I don't want to throw it out because, you know, there's stuff that I, you know, so you kind of want to keep it, but of course I don't have room in the city and it's the same thing with the signs and all the sets and all stuff, you know, in a perfect world we would have like the Raiders of the Lost Ark, like, you know, where they store the cover yeah. the arc, and just store this stuff for the next hundred years, a thousand years. But, um, but unfortunately you do have to throw it out and it's, it's kind of cool that you were able to salvage and just keep some stuff because it, it really, it's, it's, it's a, sh- it's a damn shame that it goes thing gets thrown out. But but it's true, there's, there's nothing more you can do with it, so uh, let's just well, we're going to quickly go through a couple things. Yeah, go ahead. One is okay, so let's we'll do the thing. Uh, CNBC, what was that about?
2: So, CNBC was where I started my career. Okay. I started, uh, um, with a job at CNBC before I became a page. I don't know if you know that. I and I went that. over, I don't know how I got, they were looking for people, and I interviewed and I got a position there, and I was basically told we want you to stay here what what can you do and they showed me how to. i was just hiring the interns at the time and they showed me everything david they said what do you want to learn we want to keep you here and i said but i want to be a page Mm. and they said but you don't need to be a page just stay with us at cnbc we'll take good care of you what do you want to do they brought me over to uh i started with teleprompter oh really that is yes of course so i don't know if everyone knows yeah
1: so Tell us what you did for that, because it's changed over the years. They
2: basically introduced me to the tech person at CNBC. It was a non-union place at the time up in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And they said, well, we're going to teach you about TV, because I studied architecture. Hmm. And they taught me everything they could. We started with the teleprompter. Why don't you do teleprompter for a week? See how you like it. We could use you there if you want. And I did the teleprompter is when you basically feed the lines of the script to the the newscaster.
1: and the scripts were physical pieces of paper on a conveyor belt under a camera lens.
2: Right? Yes. Okay. So just and they would fast. roll through and you would just control the speed to keep up with the, with the broadcaster. Right. And then they said, yeah, you're more talented than that. You should go into the graphics department. They introduced me to there and they were doing things. And I think it was called paint box at the time, but it yeah. was something that. The Quantel paint box.
1: The computer. And yeah, I didn't quant-
2: even know how to turn the computer on and off. I learned to draw with a pencil on paper. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. So they tried to train me how to do paint box. And I got frustrated with that. And they said, what about the tape library? They put me there for a little bit. I said, "I don't like that. And they were just doing whatever they could to keep me on staff. And I said, but I, I have plans to be a page and I'm waiting to hear from the program. I got in, but I'm on a list when I get accepted and actually start working as a page. Mm. And they said, well, we tried, you know, we would love to keep you on board, but keep us in mind and good luck being a page. And boom, I got into the page program and I kept in touch with those people, but CNBC changed and evolved and became what it is. And so CNBC is, I, I owe a lot to CNBC as my original kind of home in television for the first time. It was an oh, interesting thing.
1: Did you know Steve Fastook? Steve Fastuck? I do know him? that. name. Yeah. It's- Cause Steve Fastuck, I, I met him as a, as a page at NBC and I believe he's the head of operations at CNBC. I well,
2: so when I started at right. CNBC, by the way, this, you'll be the first to know this, but uh, who had an office in the corner when I first started there was David Zasloff. I'll never forget. Oh, really? Oh, my God. You know God. who else? Jack Abernathy. They were both working at CNBC and I was brand new green there and I didn't know who the hell they were at all. But now I know who they are. And. You know i worked on that floor with them there was nothing to it it was no it was small cnbc wasn't big
1: right that's funny. i have I have, a, I have a list of cards i have steve's card sitting here somewhere but yeah um that's so so that's what uh, I
2: see and i would commute from connecticut i was just out of college i drove all the way to fort lee new jersey every morning worked in the morning and then i went drove home every night fort lee new jersey Whew. wow
1: it's um, a lot and again you know, again, I, I always and I've said this in, in previous podcasts, you know, Joe, you know, Joe DeTulio did not get to where he is for being lazy, you know, yeah. uh, you know, right? So, yeah, you know,
2: I, agree. I mean, uh, yeah, I worked hard to be here. Sure. You know, and I do,
1: but I think that it's important, uh, you know, for and again, it's a whole different world. But, you know, you know, you, you know, doing all these things, I mean, there were so many things that you did. And I just think that some of the folks today, some of the younger folks, there's a lot to be said about physical, you know, meeting with people, learning from people, talking to people, learning a craft from somebody, you know, um, you know, a lot of people don't want to leave their, they don't, they don't want to leave their house. They just want to, you know, work remote, um, which is fine, but you can't gain the experience that you've gotten by, by doing that. Um, And I think that the relationships that you develop and the friendships you develop by being in person and spending a billion hours overnight, you know, uh, you, there's something happens when you're, when you, when you're hanging out with someone at four in the morning, you know, it's just, no doubt. It's,
2: listen, I'll never forget the page years. You were there, you were there, you were there. Yeah. You were, I came in right behind you. You had already finished the page program for a while. Right. And you were at C you were at N, WNBC. Weren't
1: you? Oh yeah, I guess. Well, it's funny. I don't, but you were uh, a page
2: right before I started.
1: Okay. So I, I guess I had finished, uh, yeah, I was at WNBC. I guess like I don't know m- remember the, the exact years, but yeah, maybe maybe you had started after me and I was working at WNBC. Yes. And I guess like again, and uh,
2: Dave. You Schiff used to I, come down to the page lounge and visit us.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. I was always which is so weird, but I, you know, it's like it's like it's like being thrown out of the nest, you know. Like I always would fly back because you you know. Yes. Um Okay. So let's, so you, you did a stint for NBC's press and publicity. Was that? Yeah. So
2: after, when my page program was up, as you know, you're not promised anything. So I took a position with the, with the press and publicity department and it kept me in the building and I continued to visit the show, but there was no opening in design that I, which is what I really wanted.
1: Mm, So you got so okay. So you had done those, you, you were a page, you, Now, press and publicity, was that a job or was that an assignment? Yes, it was
2: a job that came out of my assignment. Um, My assignment was the page desk, but CeCe Harris at the time was the um, publicist of the show, of the East Coast shows. So she was publicist for Conan and SNL. I think that was the only entertainment. There was a whole other news division with Beth Comstock and all of them. Um, But we were basically just... uh, entertainment up there. So there was a position they needed help and SNL was heading into its, I think it was headed into its 25th anniversary or something. And they said, we need more people in the publicity department. And you're new, you knew everybody because you worked the desk. So you know who the cast is and who the producers are and stuff. So, so do you want this job? And I was like, sure. But of course, David, I I don't know a thing about publicity. I, I didn't want the job at all, but I, I <laughs> stay employed. So yeah. I took the position. And you know, I realized after a year in the publicity department, I, I somebody that took the job left in the press department, I guess, and I filled in and I took the job. And 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 then what was next after the publicity? Oh, then a position opened up in the design department. I went oh. in there and I didn't get the job. Hmm. So, so,
1: so here so it I is. Said,
2: all right. The other guy got it. I went back to publicity because I hadn't quit. I just thought I'd take. And the guy then following year, the guy got fired and I, and I reapply, I went in, it wasn't even a formal application. You just heard of it. Went in, said, all right. And they said, well, I guess now we're going to have to take you since the other guy's gone. We should have probably taken you to begin with. So I got that position.
1: And- uh, Okay. So, so, so really, so again, you, you, you real that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to work for SNL and through all of these different positions and applying and all this other stuff, uh, this guy, and we don't have to mention his name, but I think I know who we're talking about. Um, was it, uh, he, he was friends with another guy that used to work on the show, which we won't mention the name. Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. So, so, so he didn't, so he left or got fired or whatever whatever happened. Okay, because because I remember that's the thing because so I so did the
2: person that took the job I wanted.
1: Okay, because I remember, I remember that thing. I remember like you being a part of the show with this other guy, and I and I and again, I don't know, I I couldn't really keep track of what what was one going on going on where, but um, but I do, and I think I remember you even brought me upstairs once, and I was like, you were showing me maybe you showed me some like drawings and things that you were yeah. that they were doing or something. So so then eventually you got a full-time gig at SNL uh, because all of that nonsense had cleared its way. Yeah. So
2: I took the job, but when I took the job, it was the end of the season. Mm. So I only had a few shows and they said, well, yeah, you can come back next year. We never know what's next year, but yeah, next year we'll have you back. Mm. And, uh, and I said, Oh, this is great. So next year I'll go back. So I came back the next year and I got the assistant job, but I had no work all summer. Because i let oh, go of the publicity job right i did the show and then they said next summer you come back and i had a whole summer i i worked like on the night crew as a carpenter mm. but there wasn't a ton of work so i would work the night shift to, to as a carpenter whenever we took the sets down and stuff
1: wow that's in, that's insane so yeah. and again people don't know that 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 i guess if you work for snl when the show's off uh is there no you know you, you get paid for the shows that you work i don't really i don't even yeah, know
2: how no there's no work when the show's cool. off so even now having done it for 28 years when there's a dark week we don't get paid we just get i have a contract that pays me per show okay so even with the writer's strike this year the last three shows uh, this was unusual but the show got cut off nbc said we're going to pay you for two of those because they paid Somehow for publicity, whatever reasons, they decided it's going to be smart. to Let's pay everybody because this was so sudden for two weeks. So a lot of people got two weeks of work before they lost their jobs. We were on our last three shows, so I only lost one show's pay. Oh, wow. Now wow. the beginning of the season comes around now. We'll see what happens. But we were on our break anyway. I don't get paid through the summer.
1: Right, right. I just Again, so through- depending on, you know. Right, so if the yeah.
2: season starts... In December this year, I lose every show that's missing. We would have normally done nine shows before Christmas and eleven shows during. We do twenty-one shows about, so ten and ten and eleven maybe before Christmas, after Christmas, Mm -hmm. Um, but it varies depending on what's going on.
1: Yeah, and people don't. And again, it. It. Um. I always was amazed that there's only like two. Is like two live shows a month, or I mean, it's not every single week. No, it's not. It's it, two
2: to three shows a month.
1: A month, yeah. Which, schedule which, varies. But yes, yeah. we
2: do twenty-one shows a season.
1: Wow, twenty okay. So usually. that is that's the number. It used to be twenty. Um it it um
2: so it, it is it
1: again, it's it's fascinating. Um again, the whole process is just yeah. it's mind boggling.
2: So I guess so that when, was the speed round. So that so that we, when we I, literally come back. And when the summer came back, they said, we're going to make you the art director. And I said, what is that? They said, you go to the shop and oversee the building. So is anyone going to train me? And they laughed. They said, what do you mean training? There's no training. You just go to the shop. We draw like normal Wednesday. And then you're at the shop Thursday and Friday. Eugene was doing it at the time. So he decided he wanted to come back into the studio. So I went back to do that. And that's what I've been doing ever since.
1: So so the art director was the... um... The art director was the, was one of the titles, but not now production designer is your current title or. Yes. So
2: after years, and then I designed the grand central set in 03. And that's when I said, they said, you know, maybe we should make you a production designer. I said, that would be great. What do we do? Who do I ask? I said, let's just talk to everyone. I went to Kenny, the AMONG. And I said, you know, I'd like the title of production designer. I talked to everybody in my department. And they all said, yeah, you deserve it. You earned, Eugene, I remember saying, it's just a title. You, you more than earned it. You, you're doing just what we do. You should be a production designer. You're designing just as much scenery as everyone else. But I held that position thinking, you know, this is the totem pole you're on. So I was moved into the production designer title. And, you know, in a way, it's it's, it's fair because I was I designed a lot of scenery for the show um and that's kind of how that worked so then i became um production designer and that's to this day that's what i am that's the title wow so um
1: just it's it's so fascinating uh some other quick things we'll touch on uh we mentioned you know we mentioned donahue conan uh jay leno um, and Leno
2: was interesting because at the end, Leno made his first trip to New York when I was newly a page. I had the page assignment as a SNL uh, at the desk. Oh yeah. And they said to me, "SNL is going dark, but Leno's coming next week." And there were four of us. I think three of us worked the page desk, maybe four. I don't remember. Do you? All right. So, I, well.
1: It was three. Now I I don't know. So did you had the SNL page? Yeah, I didn't know so, you did so, too. But yes, yeah, yeah. So did. I had the desk. Yeah, and with Schiff and with Cheryl.
2: But it's, I, I don't even know that I I don't even know that you had that. Uh, yes, I didn't. So that's either. so cool. But okay, Rachel Roberge and Dan Grossman were I think the two people with me at the desk and me I think. But anyway, um, they said Leno's coming and he wants one page to be at the desk and we'd like to pick you. They picked me. I was shocked. And I said, sure. So I got to be the page that showed all the Leno people around when they came to New York for a week and oh. answered the phones and did. So it was really wonderful. And Jay signed a picture to everyone, said, yo, you know, Joe, yo, whatever, signed all the, he was such a, such a nice guy. And, um, and well, they, just, were, that that's story.
1: Well, I'll touch on the Leno thing. Two things, uh. Well, one is, just on a side note before we get on, one is you, correct me if I'm wrong, you designed the page desk that correct. sits outside of a, a 8-H, right? Right. So, so, when, so when people, when people, when, when, when Lorne Michaels or any of the talent walks out of the doors and the talent sitting at that desk, which is the desk that I sat as a page and you sat as a page, you later went to design the desk, which is still currently sitting there, uh, and that they that people use every day and, and it also Correct. There. when
2: i was a page and when you were a page i don't know if you remember but we used to have this these bins and we would bring up telephones and keys to all the yes, dressing rooms and I all do. the shit that we needed and every day we would bring it all up and set it all up and then when the show was done we would take it all down and bring it down to the page office every time not every week every day yeah. and i thought when i was done i got uh, uh and before i did publicity I had some side work in the building doing design work and I I recommended maybe I should design a page desk that the stuff could stay here why are we we were literally sitting at an office desk all squished behind one desk I'll never forget it <laughs> So I designed an L-shaped desk that had a a lock box for all the keys to stay in and be locked up. And and then it had drawers for your phone message pads. And the phones would just be permanently there. A couple of lamps. And that was that. But it it is still there. And actually, we redesigned it once. um, But they asked me to do it. I liked the original design. It was a little more SNL. This one was Art Deco. They wanted it to kind of blend with the building, with the the first Um. floor. So yes, that's, that was one of my contributions.
1: And then you, and what about Conan's desk uh, and Conan's floor?
2: Conan's desk was also a recommendation suggestion by me, but that was another person that was working with me at the time. Okay. And, and, uh, and he recommended that we were both working together with studio operations, trying to do stuff around the building. Another thing I did that was really a big deal, but nobody realized it was me, but I had the, I had them put a glass window in the studio on the second floor. There was an equipment area. I used to snoop around. I saw all this equipment right next to the studio wall on the second floor. And I said, why can't we cut this open and put glass in it and make this the writer's room? The writers could look down into the studio during the show. And they were like, yeah, that's a great idea. And we did it. And they got in a lot of trouble because they didn't get building permits. And Uh it changes the rating of the studio when you cut a hole in a wall. Oh,
1: sure. Yeah, yeah.
2: glass and boy but everybody looked away and they did it and i was like Ugh. but <laughs> it's still there to this day and that area was all just equipment and, and the show expanded and it was a nice breakout room that they still use to this day for uh the writers to 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 work from
1: wow i mean that is so cool and again you know um uh if you probably look at there's probably that window is probably one of the, le- you know, there's probably like 9,000 uh, things that are right. done in that building <laughs> that aren't, that well, aren't up Well, rumor you know. has
2: it that there's a permit that has to be filed every year for the bleachers. Now, I think oh. this is true, but the, the, the original SNL, Eugene, uh, my colleague that passed, he puts, you, you'll notice if you walk on it, it's just scaffolding. They put right. up scaffolding, they built platforms, and they put the, the seating up there. It's all wood. It's not really even... I wouldn't say it's not safe, but man, it's, it's been up there a long time.
1: Right. So, and I'm gonna tell the audience. So, so again, if you go into 8H, you know, you walk into this large studio and you're actually walking underneath the what's scaffolding basically, and you walk through it. And then you see home base, you know, where the talent does the, the opening monologue, but up on the ninth floor, if you go up to the ninth floor, there's a, there's a door that leads out onto these, you know, bleachers or these stairs. Now, from the second floor, it kind of looks like it's built in. Like, it looks like it's part of the building. But in reality, as you just said, if you were to go underneath it, it's really... And I think they're even on wheels. Are they not? I think they're... are they no, on they're the, not. Or the, like, they're like not, I don't know if they're moving, but but they are... They're just really what's... Scal- I mean, they're, they're just... They're not permanent structures, even though they've been there. Because they really haven't...
2: They're little metal struts. If you look, they're the metal... They're the metal scaffolding that you could still buy to this day, painted over and over. And if you look under, you can see the stencil from the old SNL in some places and soundproofing that was stapled up there. A lot of it has fallen out, but it's just wood platforms with the seating on top. So yes, Eugene was the original design. In fact, on the eighth floor, there's drawings that we framed and put up from this 1975 when those bleachers were designed by Eugene and put in. Wow. because they were efficient at the time there wasn't a lot right. of money when snl first started it wasn't it wasn't you know a big show at the time people thought it was just gonna fail they never thought it would last more than one episode
1: we'll talk about when you said building a set you don't know if it's gonna become a hit they built those those bleachers when dan Aykroyd, right it was right those it's were there years for, yeah so when when belushi and Aykroyd, they were like we need some stairs build or we need some seats build it they built it and now 50 years later, almost 50 years later, it is still there. But it's true that if you look, they're not permanent they really, and, and actually, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think. Well, those bleachers have never come down. They've used that studio. They clear it out. But the bleachers always stay.
2: The bleachers have never come down.
1: Right. That's amazing. OK. Uh, OK, we're going to wrap a couple of things. Oh, just about Leno um, again. Now, it's funny when I was. Uh, and I mentioned this before, but one is Jay Leno uh, when he was the, when he was on SNL, he yes. liked the tongue. He liked the home base that, That's right. and because of SNL and because of that home base, that little tongue that came out, uh, which I believe was autumn. It was, it was electric, right? It would zoom out by itself. Or did you guys push it out?
2: Yes. Now? It's a, no, it's a, uh, it's on a motor. Yes. It's on a motor.
1: So, um, so Leno loved being down close to the audience and yeah. then when he went to the East Coast, he had them duplicate that because you liked that feel. Is that correct? He hired
2: Leo Yoshimura, one of the designers in my department, to do it, and I worked on it with him, yes.
1: Oh, really? So so literally, see, now I didn't know that. So you worked on that part of it when he went to, to the East Coast. That's insane.
2: That yeah, is so well, good. It was a bit later on that I worked on Leno. Leo did it right away. I was still a page. Wow. But the following couple of years later, when I started working in because it wasn't that long, I think it's three years past. And then Leo did a revision of the Leno set that he had done the tongue on. And I worked on that. I didn't work on the first version. But Leo told me after he came to New York, he loved it. And he said, I want it to be like this.
1: Wow. I mean, again, that in in itself is a pretty historical you know that that that's something that needs to be noted and then also um, we, in not that this not that anyone cares but when i was a uh, i guess it was in 90 was it 92 when leno came or 90 i forget
2: It would. i would say 93 i haven't
1: a- okay so i guess i was working in wnbc promotion and when the tonight show was coming out so i guess it was 90 yeah maybe it was 93 uh they said we need footage of 30 rock and Again, uh, and this is this is the beauty of being a page, which is why we were having these conversations. Yeah. Somehow, they said David Katz in the in the WNBC promotion department. Maybe because I was in the promotion department, they said you're going to go shoot some footage for the Tonight Show. And yeah. I remember I hired this guy Jefferson who shot. I believe, well, I think it was a it was an electronic camera. But we shot at at um, at uh, Magic Hour uh, of you know Thirty Rock gave it to the tonight show and the tonight show director, I think it was, it. Uh, um do you remember the directors? I forget. There was two women. I were, one was the, I guess the EP and what there was a, there was a female director, but they, I got word. They were like, they're like, Oh my God, we love this footage. You know, how did you shoot it? And blah, 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 blah. blah. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. We just shot it at magic hour. We got some really cool shots and, and they really loved it and used it in the, in the open of the tonight show, which I guess yeah. if I were to find it, that stuff that I shot with Jefferson, I mean, I produced it. So that was that was amazing. Uh, I, do, okay. I have a
2: framed photo from Leno and the ticket from the show so I could look up when it was. It's it's in the other room. Oh, that's funny.
1: Um, and then actually, just a couple of quick things. One is, well, I guess, um, well, the Emmy Awards. I mean, again, I've been to your place. You have them stacked like cordwood. Explain to me. Uh, first, of all, you have like a million Emmys. You know, you oh. had like, they're stacked up, five of them. Yeah. Uh, and they're very they're very large and beautiful. Um and also, which is really cool, uh remember well Tom Wade for those yeah, X sure. pages, Tom yeah. Wade was the guy that printed all the tickets. Yes. Uh and he physically printed these on a real like like old school printing press. On the Gutenberg print <laughs> Exactly. And you and again, maybe you'll take a picture of this if you want. I don't know if you can, but, yeah. you know, and I'll put all this stuff up. But you you literally frame them beautifully and you have all of these tickets uh, nicely framed of all the guests and all the old school tickets, um, which is yes. So when cool. I
2: started as a page. I started we've seated people, as you might recall, that was part of our job. Yes. And every time we sat, everyone, I would take a ticket and put it in my pocket for say, for you know, to say, oh, I worked this show, I worked this show. Right. <clears throat> By mid-season <clears throat> that year, I got the assignment to be on the page desk, so I pocketed a ticket every every show that mm. week, that time, because I was part of the show then. Then I I, I got I thought this is I got to save a ticket every time, so I started doing it. But they didn't want you to keep the tickets; they like to rip them up. So yeah, I would pocket them and steal them and to friends that were pages. And I would say, oh, just give me one ticket each show. And then Tom Wade would sometimes say, yeah, I got an extra ticket from that last week's show if you want, but I got to throw them. It's not marked or whatever. And he'd give me a ticket or two and I'd fall behind or not be able to get one. Um, But uh when I got my position on the show and I started getting, I became the production designer and I formally said, can I just get a ticket every show? They said, no, you can't. So I haven't been able to get them since I got (laughs) status on the show. It's like, what's the point? But I do have them for like my first, easily my first 10 years. Some of them aren't even framed yet. They're still in boxes because I never really laid them out. They're expensive to frame and they become gaudy when you have 10 of them, you know? So Um, But the early years were wonderful because they were my little map for who I saw music and host. And it helped me remember what sketches were on what shows and stuff. It was a little little shortcut.
1: Well, it's funny because in my in one of my boxes, I have I have a I have a few Tom Hanks uh, tickets. So, again, to your point, I don't I don't remember how whatever. But for whatever reason, I obviously worked the Tom Hanks show. Uh, You know, we we have the, the tickets. And it's pretty cool because, again, I don't think the tickets – they're not made the same way now, right? They're probably –
2: They're not. They're actually – they try to make them look the same, but they're printed uh, more electronically. So – the beauty of the old tickets when Tom did them is yes, they were done like on a press where he would ink the letters and he would yeah. press the tickets and he would number each ticket. Yeah, now they yeah. still do that, I'm sure, but they all look perfectly identical. Whereas yeah. when you do it with a press, sometimes the letters don't all come out perfect and right. some of them are gunkier up than others. And
1: right you could tell And they the were- paper, even the paper, I could it's like a, it's like a like a craft a heavy, paper. Yeah, yeah, it was
2: more of a heavy I don't know what you'd call it, like a Strathmore board or something, but uh yeah, now they're kinda
1: chintzy. Probably just right. Yeah. It was so cool. So I mean,
2: there's still colored paper and all, but right, yes, right. Tom would print them and he'd cut them all up too. He'd cut them on the right and Yeah, he
1: had a big he, exactly. And it was so funny because that machine, I guess the cutter and the printer was in the hallway going to the page lounge. That's correct. So he would do it, he would do it like in the in the hallway, really. And again, it's like so let me get this straight the the tickets that you get for len for for letterman for snl for donahue is being produced by this guy in a yeah. hallway a for former all of these page. shows of, oh he was a former page was he from the former he a
2: page remember he always wore his page jacket oh, yeah. oh, he okay had he had his hat he had
1: like, a ride all right and then you would always say
2: Tom, what are you up to he'd say little things little, little things. things
1: all right everything's good that's that's yeah. my impression of uh, of uh brian grossman doing little Tom. Things, little, yeah uh, so, so that
2: he, was right so the page bro that was solger and grossman and kathy delia and uh, um
1: uh, janice panino yeah uh, mary rothschild
2: mary rothschild sweetheart, yeah. and um yeah
1: it was amazing. Okay, so let's. So now we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna wind this up. If people are still listening, which I'm sure yeah. they still are, wake um, up. We have. Uh, well, we we'll covered most. I want to hear Ragtime Susical the musical. Um, um, I want to hear about your puppets, and I want to hear about you recreating the Wayne's World set for the, um, for the, the, the museum. Exhibit. So that's yeah. it. So you could you could plow wow, that's those. a lot. Okay. See right, let's put this. the let's go. We'll, put the, we'll set the timer on.
2: First one. Let's do them quick. Okay. Ragtime. Okay. So ragtime. When Eugene and I worked together, when I was new there, Eugene takes you under his wing. Eugene is a legendary designer. He's done. He's got to, Tonys, three Tonys for Candide, Sweeney Todd, and, and Wicked, and uh, the one that the gentleman that just passed, a very good, dear, dear, dear mentor and friend of mine. He taught me everything I know. When I started working with him, we did Ragtime. And it was 9-11, I was down in Savannah, Georgia when I did its first non-equity tour show because I didn't do the Broadway show. I was doing an equity tour uh, with all the pieces and parts from the uh, last touring show that was was equity. And um, we had opening night was supposed to be September 11th, 2001. And I remember going in, I had done all this work, Eugene taught me so much and everybody was so somber. And I said, what's going on? And they said, you know, go into the tour bus. And I went into the tour bus because that's where all the tour, the, the actors would get in the bus and go to the next venue. And it was a road show and they had a TV in it so you could watch. And I went and saw it and it was 9-11 had occurred. It was very, uh, you know, as everyone knows, it was a very moving situation and emotional and I had to go back to New York and my flight was obviously canceled and I had rented a car. I upgraded it to a convertible. And I said, uh, well, listen, I called the people and said, "What? I don't know what you want me to do. I can, can't sit in Savannah for the next month until flights happen or a couple of weeks. Why don't you let me drive up the East coast and, and, and come home and, and can I keep the rental? Cause they were paying. And they said, sure. And I, I was able to stop along the East coast on my way back up and stopped in like Charleston and, uh, a bunch of places Rehoboth Beach I think I stopped in and uh, but I remember I just took my time coming back because I was dreaded returning to the city but that's the Ragtime show and then of course I was very involved with Ragtime uh, as it did other shows and then I got then Eugene started with Susicle was the next show Susicle was a tough one uh, it didn't receive very good reviews, but we started up in Boston and it was the only real musical I did from the beginning to the end with Eugene in terms of development. Well, not even to the end because we were let go from that show, but it was a disastrous Broadway production. And it is one of the most done productions in high schools and, and across the world, I think, for for children. And it's a wonderful, wonderful show. I will always remember it as a very dear show but all the creative team had terrible uh difficulty with the producers and many people were fired and we were let go from that show
1: and, and actually i will mention this you were, you're uh, and again correct me if i'm wrong but you were kind enough you had actually offered some of your expertise to some local schools to help with their sort of school productions. Uh, is that correct? Yes. I
2: think I've done about five productions of Susicle in the last, I just did it last year at the local Bedford middle school. It was a wonderful production and the, they, they loved it. And I was able to stretch my legs a little and do a little more than, you know, it was nice to reconceive the show instead of under Eugene's uh, uh, um, tutelage, but you know, it, it, it was a, it was a difficult and, and educational experience um, for sure. But I worked alongside Eugene on all kinds of theater projects from and, and TV projects from Ricky Lake to uh, American Morning Show and to uh, On Golden Pond he did a production of and for the t- for TV. And I did a lot of work with him for like seven or eight years before, right before Wicked was Susical, And that's when I said it was too difficult to work with a mentor at SNL and do other projects because it would consume me during SNL and I right. had to break that off. I just had to. So wow. that's that. What was that? Well, okay,
1: and then um, so now on Fifth Avenue in we're going to say 38th Street. I don't know. There was a SNL. Oh. Museum yeah. of some sort. There was an SNL. What well, was? What was like an SNL. uh retro exhibit okay that's it
2: yeah they did a big exhibit and it was quite a long there's a a long story to that but we'll start with um there were two uh, three snl projects two of which never happened and the third one was the exhibit that did the first was soliciting from vegas they wanted to do a whole saturday night live themed vegas project and everyone was into it with slot machines and all but designing the space like snl and then having a show accompany it with either some of the cast can come and join it or a whole nother cast that's la that's that's vegas only not la um or on the off weeks or summer weeks they would go and do some special shows and it never came to fruition then there was a big effort to do a smithsonian exhibit about saturday night live Uh eugene built this massive model we all worked on it a lot of us worked on it and it was a lot of enthusiasm for it but I will say there was this, Eugene would constantly say like, you don't really join the Smithsonian until you're dead. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, and it was always, he was always funny like that. And we did a whole thing, but it never came to fruition. It never happened. And then the exhibit came along. And this guy, Mark Locke was in charge of it. He did a lot of exhibits. He had good success with one of the, one of the uh, uh, King Tut exhibits that toured and uh, his company and he put together the exhibit of SNL. It didn't have a long life, but we basically had to recreate a lot for this. Uh, People just thought we had the scenery, but we didn't. We recreated Wayne's World. We actually found the church chap uh, velours, but the church chap velours, nobody realized we had them in a hamper. They they were recreated by me when Dana Carvey came on. They weren't really the originals. And anyway, the exhibit was interesting because I had to take my Grand Central set and make it fit in a space. I had to do some things to compromise and make it fit. And we recreated so much. Uh, And the exhibit, I think, was pretty good. But if you're going to go see an exhibit on SNL in New York, you you might as well go see the show. (laughs) It just seemed weird. And then it got packed up and it went to Chicago. and And it was there in Chicago for a while. Then it got packed up from there and the company got sold and all of our assets that were supposed to be ours. We were told, give them whatever they want, but they'll, we own it still. So we'll get it back if we ever need it. All disappeared. They had so many things that I just wanted to cry. I gave them a model of mine that I said, I want this back. And they were like, yeah, but it was impossible to track everything. It all went to storage and into the abyss and we, we, you know, we remade we recreated the studio seats, very famous seats. Oh uh, yeah. The ones that are on the floor, you know the metal ones that have the right. rotating wood bases? Those right. were all pre-fabricated from boat seats back in 75. Eugene remembered what it was. They manufactured a bunch of them for the exhibit and the old ones we have are falling apart. They threw all of those seats Wait, out.
1: Wait, so I'm going to talk about. So again, for those listening and of course if you watch the show when the guest host comes out onto main uh you know to the home base the the their seats where they're sitting on and they and they swivel those seats uh just have a big metal base and there's a big heavy base and the are big heavy chairs but they're not attached to the floor they just physically get placed there so now you're telling me which again this is the first time so those chairs because it's true they've been there i guess from the beginning, right? those chairs which again float around you know they they could someone could throw in the back of a car and take one home but uh but you're saying that that eugene that those chairs were put in 1975 and they were originally boat chairs is that they were
2: made out of parts from boat chairs he told me yes they were like the they were they were chrome dipped metal bar with a wood seat and a wood back in a special uh um little you know a little swivel thing and it dropped right. and they took these boat base basic pieces i guess and and fabricated them into the seats you see there there well when we had to recreate them we're talking you know 40 years later for the exhibit there was nothing like it they had to be all manufactured by hand even the seats in the backs we had somebody take a, a routing machine and make all the wood pieces wow and and varnish them on they came out beautiful and ours are falling apart and i wanted them for backup and as the exhibit deteriorated and i called around said i need those seats where are they oh we'll check we'll check finally when i was more persistent they said those seats are all gone we threw them away oh no thousands of dollars worth of stuff in that exhibit and
1: were and um so again here you hear what's so funny is that the 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 chances of recreating those seats are slim to non-existent and then here you did it for this exhibit and god you could have used them for the next 50 years yes and they got I was thrown whining out.
2: because we're down to what's left broken back a broken right. seat we have a few spares but they've all been cobbled from parts and now each time i need something they got to kind of do their best to refabricate it but whatever no. the point is I,
1: well it's it's funny because even those chairs and again and, and for some reason ken homel keeps on popping into my head it's just it's like that though like could we go to kmart even though Kmart's not around, could we go to Sears? Oh yeah, Sears is it? Could we go to uh, Walmart and buy chairs and put them on the floor? Yes, but those chairs from 1975, cobbled together by by Eugene and the and the, and and what they did, those are the seats. Those are the yeah. seats that people expect. And well, think about and that's it. That's the magic way. of it, you know.
2: Think about it this way: every audience member's ass that sat in those seats from 1975 till now. I mean, not to be right. But this is the seats that if you ever went to the show and sat on the floor, you sat in one of those seats and and they're the same ones, you know, whereas so much of the show has changed and it's not the same in the 50 years it's been around, but those seats are the same. And that's like those, you know, that's the kind of thing that's. Well, I will say
1: my, my parents, their asses, I sat them when I was the page, they sat in the two front seats uh, my mother said dead center when Robert Wagner was there. My dad sat next to her looking up to him because my mother loved him. And I'm like, yeah. my parents are going right there. So yeah, yeah it's it, there's something me. I wow. put mine
2: in the back, though. I didn't want to. <laughs> but yes, so many wow. times. So wow. As for Wayne's World and the recreation, oh, yeah. all that stuff was necessary. We recreated the original home base twice. I had to do it for Man on the Moon, which was a movie that my, oh. Milos Foreman directed, I believe. And um patricia van brandenstein was the production designer and we just took studio 8h and we made it back into the original show it was very weird and fun but we i designed it with with photos and, and videos what i did and looked closely and eugene had drawings and stuff but i just did my best to recreate it and when that was over it got thrown away and then so the wait, wait so so exhibit, so
1: Wait, well, let me just say. So, Man in the Moon, which was with with uh, Andy Kaufman. That's uh, Basically, he, uh, I guess, in the move in the um, in the recreation for the movie, which was sort of recreating what SNL was back in the day, they had to do it with with um, what's his name with um, the actor that played uh, Andy Kaufman. Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. So then you had to recreate a set that was a copy of the original set to put in the movie?
2: Not only the set, we had to recreate the whole studio look. So we did, instead of taking the first episode or the historically correct episode we were doing, we took the iconic sets, we did the home base and I inserted it into the existing home base. So it looked like the original home base. Right. And on stage three A and three B, which you might know, not everyone does, but there's two stages that everyone can see. We put, uh, we redid the cheeseburger sketch We redid on the other one we did the Wolverine sketch and then down on the floor in the area we call the cane, which is stage four, I recreated the killer bees hospital baby hospital, they were simple sets and we recreated for the other side of the studio the original weekend update set so. The idea was that at least the scenery laying around was the scenery from the show, and they shot a whole sequence in there. And if you look and watch that movie, that's all done in 8H. That's done in. Really? really?
1: So, so uh, that was going to be my next question. So, you're telling me that the sets that you built in front of the existing sets or were doctored up was actually what they shot the movie in. They Correct. The movie in a, which is insane. Only that scene. That scene, but right, right. Which is so. The movie has
2: a ton of other stuff yeah. in it, but we right. were called upon to do this part, and Eugene was asked to do it, and he gave it wow. to me. Wow. That's amazing. It's interesting. I, I, it's weird that they would. Why
1: did they want to actually shoot it in 8H? Because they could have, you could have technically just done it anywhere, but what, you know, what I think was the was reason? The, there
2: was a certain thrill of it for A they just wanted one, to do after- the people that were all the extras in it, we used our SNL staff. So, people like Wally from Q Cards, they gave him 70s wardrobe. Oh, wow. He did Q Cards like he was the original Q Card guy. And everybody else that knew the show, like the studio crew, were the ones that knew how to move stuff around. They weren't from the first years, but they dressed them in 70s stuff and they were extras. And Lauren was there, so he was in it. And wow. they did it because it's the real space. Right. In, in many ways. Oh my God. They didn't have to recreate all the bleachers. Right,
1: right, right. That would have been and, just, and I guess all the lights hanging, just all the things that you would see off camera or to and the it's side. it's the
2: actual space, so wow. why not,
1: right? That's amazing. So, okay, so there's two final things and then we're going to wrap this puppy up. All right. One is you just mentioned Wally, which is the cue card guy. Yes. So again, for the listeners, and again, this in itself is insane. Just quickly tell people about cue cards and just the process, which is insane.
2: Yeah. Cards are great. You should talk to Wally. He would be, Oh, he's not a page. Well, (laughs) Wally uh, has been with the show a long time, but there was someone before him. Uh, Anyway, he took it over when I was new. So I'd say he's there a good 28 years at least. And Wally, uh, basically all the scripts go to the cue card department and they're all set up with markers and big white cards. Um, I would say they're about, you know, 18 by 20 or something like that. And they hand write with the Sharpie with nice big fat printing the script and everybody gets their own color. So if you're the host that week, maybe you're blue and all your other other people get assigned colors according to the sketch they're in say, all right, today your script writing is red or whatever. And then um, when the rewrites happen, it allows them to take the fat two inch white paper tape tape over sometimes and just write over that to speed things up instead of rewriting all the cards or insert a card but they still do the cards on a physical cue card and they hold them up next to the camera because they're bigger lettering and it's easier to move stuff around in terms of if you want to relocate a set of cards or if things change between dress and air those cards can be positioned accordingly um And it just, they never did the teleprompter like most shows have. Uh, And I think it really only, Conan took it with him, but he's gone now. Um, uh, Tonight Show still does it, meaning uh, 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 Jimmy Fallon still does cue cards and Seth Meyers still does cue cards. But I'm not sure anyone else in the business really does them. It's a dying art. And he used to do them for Leno out West Coast, I guess. But I don't know. I guess when it came here, Jimmy took it over. So that's it. That's it. Those are the only shows I know of that use real cue cards.
1: Right. And then again, just to clarify, just to just to the, the, the to, you know, for these cue cards. So here it is. The scripts are being written, you know, at lightning speed, and they're pages. They're pages and pages thick. I'm, I don't know how thick a the a show would be. How, how how big would a would a whole show of scripts be? I don't know. is it? A-
2: well, one sketch is usually ten to twelve pages, maybe.
1: Okay. 18,
2: 12 pages, but it's a lot of spacing and a lot of like, you know, the name right. of the actor or, you know, the character and then dialogue. And right. so, uh, but yes, there's stacks of those cards. They don't throw them out. They stack them all in the paint area. Cause we use them under the sets when we paint to pick right. up the paint droppings.
1: Right. So, so again, if people, if, um just imagine getting a script. So let's say it was 10 pages spread out, whatever it is, but, there's a human being physically writing the whole script on on cards and the cards have to be kept in order and the cards have to be color coded for who's saying what it. Just imagine for those listening, if, if I said to you, here's 10 pages, I want you to put this on a cue card, color code them. And on the day of the show we're going to give you some changes you're now going to have to cover up certain things with this tape rewrite the new scripts on them keep them in order and then hold them next to the camera live on the air that in itself almost seems like an impossible task so the
2: fact
1: yeah so the fact that this that this crew you know i i believe is it like what a half a dozen or so folks doing this at the time i don't know
2: easily i would say it's upper to 12 now twice that but yeah yes you also need a catcher so whoever's holding cards and feeding once they remove the first card they got to hand it to a catcher who has to keep them Mm. in order for the next time they use them
1: wow yeah i mean again unbelievable and and it's amazing that those cards as you mentioned they just they must be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cards and I know that I remember walking underneath the the bleachers, you'd see these big stacks of uh, of yes. cars lying around. It's good that you're able to reuse them, which is amazing. Okay. so the final thing is just your last thing is your puppetry. Oh. um and I and again, I Joe, really, and it, it it it's amazing, and i and it's it's rare that I say this, but you're so talented, it's nauseating. Nah. you you literally, and you've showed me some of these creations. Um, literally if Jim Henson was alive, were alive today, um, he would be in awe. I mean, he would be, you know, he, he, would, he would treat you as, as one of his own. Um, tell us about some of these puppets that you've done cause you've shown them to me. And basically for those listening, Joe literally has created his own characters and correct me if I'm wrong and how I'm phrasing this, but you know, your, your own characters and they look, Right. Like as if Kermit the Frog was sitting next to you or these guys, I mean, with working eyeballs and lips and teeth and all these parts and, and you know, and the and the flurry, you know, the fluffy uh, feathers. And everything. so just quickly tell us about that passion and and, you know, how you build them, et cetera, because it's it's unbelievable.
2: Yeah, thank you. Well, listen, I'll try to keep it brief. Here's the thing. Um, When you do something for a long time, which I consider myself having done, the show, SNL, and the scenery and all, I feel the need to explore new things. And I started exploring the puppetry world because it always fascinated me. And it is an overlapping part of my responsibilities on the show. Obviously, I'm not designing puppets for the show, but when I design a set, if I had to do like the Waldorf and Stett Ladder, those are the two old people on the oh, Muppets, right? Right. Um, We had to recreate that with puppets for a sketch, and we did. Oh, really?
1: Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. And
2: I took a picture of it, and I have a little frame with my drawing of it. and all Okay, you're going to have to
1: take a picture of that one, too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get, I will. That's so funny.
2: But I found it interesting, because the truth is, you know, this is the overlap suddenly. We have puppets on the show all the time, and I never thought till then, but here we go, we're making a Kermit the Frog on a brick wall, and then the two old guys in the balcony. And I'm thinking, you know, I've been wanting to explore puppetry for a long time. I'm due for some new stimulus. So I started taking courses once a year. I apply to this, uh, um, the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, which is steeped in history and in the arts in Connecticut. And it's been around since the 50s, I believe. And Jim Henson was part of the original team that created it. But it was really for the theater arts. It wasn't really puppetry. And they have a puppetry division now that was born in the 90s out of at least a focused section that was born in the 90s out of Henson's foundation And when Jim Henson died. So every year I apply, and so far I've gotten in every year, but you don't always get in. And it's a small group of people, a lot of Muppets, a lot of Henson people, a lot of uh, Sesame Street people. And you basically spend two weeks there exploring whatever you applied for uh, in puppetry. And it is, to me, something I'd like to con- you know, further examine and explore. But my work lately has been to design and make puppets and fabricate them. And I'm finding it quite delightful. But I also realize it's not a ton of money in it, believe it
1: or not. <laughs> Probably, I don't know, you know.
2: So um, so that's the latest with puppets. I'd love to share some of them with you. I've been carving hands and feet. I've been, you know, learning what I can learn and and, and exploring what I can explore because, you know, as a human, we're interested in, we're curious, aren't we? And I think so you should almost,
1: you, you could explore. almost like have the, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not even joking. You know, you could literally almost have a Joe Tullio school of, Design and you know uh, production, whatever, and literally do a like, or even have a camp where you show production design and and set building and and the puppetry and you know and bring young kids in and show them, which would literally change the rest of their lives. But I think you you have enough experience, talent, know how, everything else. It really would be really quite cool. So so maybe if anyone's listening and they want to maybe fund or, or, or some foundation that would be, you know, that's, like I said, there's so much, there's so much interesting things that you're doing. Um, and it's so cool. Like you're doing the puppetry. And and like I said, you showed me how you showed me some of this stuff. And again, I get a kick out of it because like I said I'm in my apartment, you know, knocking shit onto the floor and I'm breaking things and I'm yeah yeah everything looks like I took a hacksaw to it and it's 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 horrible and I I even said to my girlfriend I'm like I said if Joe did this it would be perfect I said you know <laughs> I don't I'm know. like you know and and I do the best I can and some of the stuff is good but it's 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 amazing for this for the for the level um and it's funny even even your woodworking in your house that you've built some of the shelving and things you've built that you showed me um it's quite extraordinary so in any case i it's you know uh, maybe you know i said after the podcast you could you know if you had time you want to take some shots i'll put them on the website but
2: yeah that's the thing um, i could share with you a lot you have
1: tons of because I know you have I think our,
2: our 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 interview is maybe awfully long and obviously I could talk forever but in 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 at least to try to wrap it up for you because uh we've put a lot of people to sleep probably but <laughs> no, um, you know I think it's critical to at least express this and share this with people if they are making it through to the final part of this interview and all it, curiosity should never end. You know, I think it's important for people and I don't want to preach in any way, but you know, I think as I look now and examine, like we're talking about Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live, so many people are interested and fascinated by that show and how much there is in the show. And I never thought I would feel this way, but I have become exhausted of the show because my parameters stop changing and even though there's a new sketch and new shows each week, my age is, I'm older, uh, the hours of not sleeping and all, they can really weigh on you. And people seem to think, you work for Saturday Live, that must be so great and so exciting. Anywhere you work, people think that. But And the grass is always greener. But, you know, curiosity will put you in the seat of your next endeavor. And I think the curiosity of the puppetry and all that stuff, to me, it keeps me very happy and I still have to make a living and do the show and I still do it, but I think I've come to the point where we don't know where the show is going to go. You think you're going to be young forever. You think SNL is going to be around forever and you think uh, maybe you're always going to be secure and always have a job, but even you must know just as well, it's tough out there. And uh, I, I admire your, uh, uh, you know, your hard work and your, uh, uh, um, uh, enthusiasm for you know constantly having ideas to do this or that or the other enterprise and you know david harris katz enterprise i mean i, I have a lot of respect for what you do and where you are and it, yeah i i put a lot of t- a lot of time into snl some of its luck some of its hard work some of its talent but you know you got to put all these things together and find what makes you happy and i think at this point snl made me very happy for a very long time but the exploration that we're leaving on, and that you're mentioning with the puppetry and stuff, it's wonderfully fun for me, and I and I am capable of it. And who'd have ever thought I would work for SNL? Never mind. Who would have ever thought I would work in puppets? I, I would have never ever guessed this in a million years. But I find this, and you could you can't the viewers can't see over my shoulder. This yeah. was given to me by a dear friend, Bob Flanagan it's a puppet of, uh, over my shoulder, a Bill Baird puppet, which you guys can look up if you want a very famous puppeteer. He did the goat herders and stuff from the sound of music is his most yeah. famous work, oh. but he did a lot of puppetry work. And, um, I guess where I leave you is Bob Flanagan, whose work is amazing amount of work for SNL. He did the Falconer and Tunksis the cat and all these, puppets. <laughs> this stuff is, is, uh, um, It's all wonderful to collect and be a part of, but let's find what you wanna do and be stimulated by it and do it. Um, Because you'd be surprised, I swear to you, I would have never thought I would work for SNL one day, Never mind, 28 years. And I I think there's more ahead, but um, the pages that went through that program with me, I'm very close with some three or four of them I talked to constantly that I was a page with and this is an interesting family of people. And I think uh, I always wish it was what you're doing is great. I wish there was more of this community uh, uh, um, that would overlap and meet and talk. And, and I can't even reach the people that I was a page with really. So I'd love to see with this day and age for it to kind of grow. And uh, I look forward to seeing more of your work on this little project of the, you know, what where the pages are now, whatever you're gonna call it. Um,
1: well, I, again, I thank can't, you time. I, yeah, I can't thank you enough. I mean, again, I, I personally like, it sounds corny, but as a fan to, to listen to these stories that you shared, uh, I don't know what, he, and, and it's so funny. Cause even though it's been almost 30 years, it's so, uh, it's still exciting to me to hear these stories. And I think, and I, and again, I'll bring Ken Hummel in, you know, um, even to this day, you know, Ken's constantly posting you know programming schedules from nineteen seventy yeah, you yeah. know doing all these silly things. But you know, to your point, you know, if you find something you're passionate about, you know, as they as they say, you know, you'll never work a day in your life. and yeah. you know, you working on the puppets and you doing the the sets and all this other this this creative outlet, um, could you imagine if you had to go work a nine to five job? I, know, I could never desk? do
2: in fact, I have to laugh. I've spent most of yesterday and today working on beauty and the beast
1: oh wow
2: for the local school
1: oh wow and i'm gonna put that i'll take another screenshot of that one too that's perfect But
2: you know in other words like it just never ends And, and the puppets i'm carving hands for a marionettist from canada who i think is brilliant ronnie burkett he does beautiful beautiful work and i'm hoping to send some hands i carved up to him to see if he wants me to help him with his latest project and but yes you know, Dave, we didn't even touch, we could do another interview sometime too. <laughs> We never talk about so many things like the camel story I wanted to tell you. And oh the, sure. The parties and all that. But this stuff is it just can go on forever. And I think it eventually people doze off. So maybe we, you can get this condensed down and and
1: no, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you to that. Maybe um, cause this I'm gonna put this obviously for the folks that are listening. This this is the the entire Conversation. It's it's about uh, three hours long. Uh, what is it? One, two, three. Yeah, three hours long. um In the future, maybe you know, a couple of months, whatever it was. Let's just talk about the SNL parties. cancun maybe we could just have a little quick recap. We could do sort yeah, of we follow could do up. a little short ones. Or so, um, it but, seems
2: like I might be available in the next few months. That's
1: right. You might have a little extra time. So but I, but but I'm going to hold you to that. And if you send photos and, and those that are listening, go to a page in history TV, go to the uh, gallery or photos section and you'll see actually a ton of uh, behind the scenes photos from all of the pages over the years. Uh, people from all over the country have been sending photos. They're up there. And then Joe will take some snapshots and I'll take some things and we'll put all that up there so you could watch, uh, which is really cool. So on that note, I'm going to thank you. God bless you, Joe. I can't thank you enough. This is so fascinating. Um, and it was just been an, an absolute pleasure. So I well, thank I you very much. I
2: feel the same. It's an honor. It's an honor. Thank you. and uh, you
1: know, Thank you very much.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, Mr.
1: Joe Oh Mr. David Harris-Katz.
0: Thanks for listening to A Page in History. A page in history is produced by David Harris Katz Entertainment. For more information on our television shows, syndication, and more, go to dhcats.com. And to listen to more episodes of A Page in History, or if you've been lucky enough to call yourself one of the world-famous NBC Pages and would like to appear on the show, go to apageinhistory.tv. <laughs>